The spirit of performance is what defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Bootleg Football Podcast. I'm your host, Brett Coleman, here with my wonderful co-host, EJ Snyder. Uh, and I'll tell you what, EJ, NFC East, it's been a long time coming. Um, it is the division that I think is most known for, for lack of a better word, hatred uh, towards one another. But it's like a brotherly hatred. So I'm fully anticipating that our comment sections are going to be uh, a shit show, I guess is the best way to define it. Yeah, lively. Lively. Uh, And so to prepare for that, we're actually recording at at noon on a Saturday. We're we're used to recording at night. Today we're recording at the day. So uh, you and I both were kind of on the same wavelength here. We didn't even coordinate this, but we both have Irish coffee in our cups this morning so that we can get through talking about this interesting division, for lack of a better word. Uh, before we get into our first team, the New York Giants, though, EJ, buddy, how you doing? I'm good. I'm actually low-key excited to talk about the NFC East. I think we did these divisional previews last year. NFC East was one of the divisions that I was not thrilled about talking about. I had some hope for, but it definitely wasn't the most exciting division we did. That kind of played out during the year. They had some big injuries uh, throughout the division. Uh, definitely some some teams falling apart a little bit and and underperforming this year. A bunch of them reloaded. The draft classes are interesting, so a uh, little bit a little bit more hype than I was uh, last year to talk NFC East. But it's always good to to keep rolling through the divisional previews. What'd you put in your Irish coffee, by the way? Oh, Jameson Cold Brew. There's no other choice. Oh, there, well, there there are other choices. Strangely enough, I have Jameson Cold Brew, but I got some new stuff, so I'm trying it out in Irish coffee, and it, it is Kinsale, uh, triple distilled Irish whiskey that is aged in double charred bourbon casks. Ooh. So I'm I'm excited. It's pretty good straight, but I figured I'd throw it in the Irish coffee and figure it out. As we are doing our Saturday morning cartoons version of bootleg, <laughs> so we should have appropriate drinks. Uh, but no, I'm pretty psyched. Uh, it's gonna be it's gonna be fun. There's uh, there's already storylines. We're you know a couple of weeks into camp and and it's been uh, lively on the NFC East front in terms of news. So we'll roll some of that in too. But yeah, let's get to it. Yeah, why don't we hop into? Uh, <laughs> well, I, it's hard to rank the NFC East teams in terms of drama so far. But 
probably none more so than the New York Giants, where, and this is, by the way, this is not a shot at Joe Judge. This is not a shot at the organization. But can we just say that it's really weird that people keep retiring in the middle of camp? Like, they're not the only team. Like, the Raiders have had a few retirements as well, but like three veterans retiring in a span of two days is not normal. And I know that none of them were quote unquote starters, but that's just weird, right? Like, am I wrong to just say that that is not a usual thing that happens? I think three is the number that pricks people's ears up. There are always retirements during camp, right? Uh, Especially with a roster like the Raiders that tends to be, uh, John Gruden has always favored veterans. So you have some older players and they, they wind it up and, you know, they don't do two days anymore, but it's hot. People start hitting them and they're like, ah, I don't really want to do this again. Like I, I thought I had it and I don't have it. So there's always a few of those through the, the preseason. Uh, but three uh, on one team in a couple of days is what pricks people's ears up. And, and you've had two camps of reaction about this, right? You've had the, huh? That's weird camp, which we sort of fall into. Like, is this something to pay attention to? We're not sure. And then you have the hardcore sort of true blue truther that is like, it's not weird. They weren't starters. It's totally fine that they just up and left camp. And you're like, whoa, whoa, I didn't say it. You know, but there's been like two decided reactions to these retirements for sure. And, you know, beyond just the retirements, they've also had, you know, some several high profile injuries that either just happened or, you know, that guys are coming back from Darius Slayton got a little bit nicked up. He practiced a couple days ago. They held him out today um, for like a, I guess you can call it a veteran day off, even though he's kind of a young player, but uh, so they're kind of easing him back in, you know, Kenny Galladay's working through a pole that's, that might linger for a little while. Saquon might not even play till they're saying like week three, week four coming off that ACL. Um, So they, they're banged up, man. It's it's not a great start health-wise for the Giants. And this has been kind of a this has been built as like a prove it year for Daniel Jones, where it's like, okay, he's got the weapons, they've invested in the offensive line, the defense is great. Let's see what Daniel Jones can do. And now you look and all of a sudden, okay, his top two receivers are banged up. Sterling Shepard, he's he's okay uh as a slot receiver, but you're not going to like put him outside and say, okay, go do Kenny Galladay's job while Kenny's out. And you know, Kadarius Tony's a rookie and not a particularly polished one at that. So all of a sudden, all these weapons that we were banking on aren't there. And we're kind of right back to where we were last year where we're like, can Daniel Jones make up the difference? And I don't, I don't feel comfortable saying yes yet. It's the giants are a very hard team to project. Yeah, if they come back from the injuries, if Galladay's hamstring, you know, gets right, um, you know, Saquon comes back, they they keep him out the right amount of time. Because, I look, I would rather they keep him out the right amount of time. And I don't care if that's half the season. I know that's, you know, Giants fans are like, no, don't say that. <laughs> but, you know, when he's right, he's right. We're not going to know that. He and the training staff are going to know that. And they ease him back in. I The last thing I want to see happen is him come back a little bit early and ding himself and miss a few more weeks and have it linger through this season. So again, if these guys come back, they heal up, it's the preseason. I'm not going to overreact. Slayton works his way back in, gets in the regular rotation. We're, we're kind of right back to the cupboard is restocked. If that doesn't happen, if we have lingering injuries, if guys get re-injured, 
Um, it's going to be rough because Daniel Jones is not typically at his best or has not been at his best as a pro when he's had to do it all. He's not a great quarterback to be going out there and playing hero ball. Uh, he usually ends up giving the ball away, right? Yeah. Whether it's through forcing a pass and having it intercepted or holding it too long, trying to make something happen and giving up a fumble on a sack, which he's done at a, a remarkable rate. <laughs> yeah, that's a word um, for it. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, so again, it comes down to this sort of basics, regardless of the weapons, can Daniel Jones hang on to the ball? And that's, you know, better decisions in the passing game and better ball security um, when the passing game isn't working out. He's going to take a hit. He cannot put the ball on the turf. And if he doesn't do that, I don't care what weapons he has, he's not going to be all that successful. If he can do that, and some of these weapons sort of ease back in, uh, as you know, veteran players often do as we get back into the regular season. I, I could see the Giants making some noise. They started to gel under Joe Judge at the end of last season. They gave the Seahawks everything they could handle. Um, and they started to look like a team that had kind of bought in and, and figured it out and was getting it together. Now, every year is a different year, but that gave me some hope. And they added some weapons, which also gave me some hope. So if, if those come back on the field, I'm feeling okay about it. If we start to or continue to see uh, fights and, uh, you know, physical enforcement of practice rules and, you know, guys starting to grumble, there's there's been whispers, he's lost the team, you know, those sort of things, that, that's going to prick my ears up. I'm going to be I'm going to be paying attention to that through the early season, because that's those are the kind of things where a team can just go in the tank and say, forget it. We're not we're not playing for this guy. He's not going to be here next year. I'm, I'm just going to make the business decision and, and protect my body. If that happens, the Giants are sunk like they're they're heading towards uh, reload status. I wouldn't say rebuild because there's a lot of talent there. But, um, you know, at the same time, if everything solids up and they get right, uh, they could they could absolutely be in the mix for the the division title. Well, the good news for the Giants is that at least uh, in back to back years, Dave Gettleman has absolutely crushed the draft. I know you and I uh, were kind of down on him, you know, year one, year two. We disagreed with most of his moves that he was making, I would say. But year three and year four, at least now being year four, I think he's absolutely nailed it. Not every pick has been exactly what I would do, but at least in terms of, you know, assessing value, uh, building for an identity, because I think one of the big things in team building is you have to shoot for an identity and and actually hit it. And I think that kind of Dave Gettleman, you know, we're going to control the line of scrimmage, we're going to run the ball, we're going to stop the run, we're going to rush the passer kind of identity that he's always aimed for. It it really reflects itself in the roster where it's at today. So I want to go over uh, their draft. They only had six picks. It wasn't a big class, but I thought it was a really, really good class. Uh, round one, pick 20, they took Kadarius Tony. That was like the one pick where I was like, okay, I can understand it. I would have like preferred Elijah Moore, but I can also see like when you watch Kadarius Tony play at Florida, the dude was untackleable. So it's like, I, I get it. What did I value him as high as some of the other wide receivers? No, but he's still a really good player. And it was a position that I felt they needed to address even more beyond just their free agency investments to make sure that Daniel Jones was um, as supported as humanly possible. Because guess what? As they're finding out now, injuries happen. You spend a bunch of money on Kenny Galladay. He's out with a hammy. Darius Slayton got banged up. Sterling Shepard's a little bit older now. Like 
you need four guys now. And so they got their fourth guy and that, that might end up being a very prudent pick for them. Uh, round two, they got Aziz Ojolari, which I thought was a really good value. I, I didn't see Aziz as like a first round lock like a lot of other people did, but he's a really good football player. Kind of reminds me of like a, like a Whitney Merciless type. You know, he's just very, very solid, extremely disciplined against the run, smart player. Um, got a nasty uh, kind of swipe move uh, in the vein of um, uh, Shaq Barrett. Like, it looks very similar to Shaq Barrett when he's kind of swiping and bending the edge. He's a really good player, getting him in round two. Plus, he's a great fit for what Patrick Graham likes in terms of, like, his stand-up edge rushers. Uh, Aaron Robinson from UCF. I know you were a big fan of him. Corner out of UCF. Um, very physical. Very, very physical. So it kind of plays into that Dave Gettleman identity of, like, even when we take DBs, we're going to take DBs that want to beat you up. Uh, and then Ellerson Smith might be my favorite pick in this entire class, getting him in round four. This dude is a 6'7 edge rusher with 34 and a half, 35-inch arms that jumps over 40 inches in the vertical. He is beyond freaky, like beyond freaky. It's it's almost like a J.J. Watt level of athleticism. Different kind of build. Smith is a little bit narrower, but in terms of explosiveness, length, everything like that. It's, it's very JJ Watt. Uh, and I know that's, that's a lot of pressure to put on the kid. Cause JJ is like one of the 10 greatest defensive linemen of all time. But from a physical skill set, that's what I see with him. And again, getting him in the fourth round, the only reason you're able to get him in the fourth round is because he's from Northern Iowa. And it was kind of a weird COVID year where there, there wasn't, there wasn't as many opportunities for kind of teams to meet with him and work him out and stuff like that. So I think he slipped a little bit because of that. But, man, he's a really good player. Uh, Gary Brightwell, running back from Arizona. And then Radarius Williams, the corner out of Oklahoma State, round out their class. Uh, I did not watch Brightwell. And Radarius Williams, I had a UDFA grade on. So any, anywhere from, like, mid to late six to UDFA, it's all kind of the same pool of guys. So that wasn't a big reach for me. But uh, I didn't watch Brightwell. Did you happen to? Yeah, I did because he was a, he was a favorite of DJ's. Daniel Jeremiah had said, oh, probably a couple months before the draft, just in like one tweet, he was like, there's some NFL teams that like Brightwell. And I was like, who? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I did. I went and watched him. Um, yeah, great class overall. Kadarius Tony, I'm with you. Uh, it, was, it wasn't the start I was looking for. It definitely worried me right off the top. Again, there were players I thought were, were sort of better long-term values, but I understand that, you know, Gettleman and the Giants were looking for not Sterling Shepard, right? They needed <laughs> they needed electricity. They needed excitement. They needed a huge yak threat. And Kadarius Toney, although being unrefined, is that. He is lightning in a bottle. He can go the distance anytime. He is entirely unpredictable, very hard to tackle. Um, he brings an element to the Giants offense that they just did not have. So I understand that from a fit piece, from a value stance, meh, you know, okay, I get it. I'm not going to, not going to kill him for it. Coming back in the second with Aziz, great value for when you got him in the draft. Like you said, as soon as I read Patrick Graham, I was like, oh, he's, he's happy. That's a Patrick <laughs> Graham pick. 
um, super speedy around the edge, probably the, the sort of most bursty, bendy, pure edge rusher in this draft. That was kind of his billing is not necessarily the sturdiest. He's now he's smart against the run. Like a lot of guys from Georgia, Leonard Floyd comes to mind. Like they're not heavy duty edge setters, but they're not bad against the run just because they're fast and they can bend. And, um, Aziz, I think, had some of the most pure sort of edge bend in this draft, which is always going to push people up the ranks. But I thought getting him mid-second was tremendous. Aaron Robinson is an absolute dog. He's going to play in the slot. Um, he is, and he showed it at the senior bowl too, but uh, his tape is just up in your face, physical. Reminds me of um, Jason Barrett, right? Oh, yeah. Short, yeah. Shorter build super physical athletic great change of direction um just a player i thought was really underrated in this draft ellerson smith same thing um when i went back i, I watched ellerson smith before the senior bowl i watched him at the senior bowl and then I went back and i thought where because he seemed like he was falling down boards a little bit it seemed like people were forgetting about him a little bit and i i wanted i wanted to sort of re-rank him as i had watched a bunch of other players since i watched him the first time and I went back to the senior bowl one-on-ones and I watched him versus just the top guys, just the top tackles and, and guards that he went against as they rotate in one-on-ones. And he smoked all of them yep. like in succession and was so smooth doing it. You talked about tools and skills. You said JJ Watt. I see a lot less power in his game, but the hand uses the coordination uh, that reach, his ability to use that length to keep people off him, to go inside, to go outside, uh, to dip even at that height, right, and be slippery around the outside, the ability to counter inside, just very, very coordinated and, and like sky's the limit. And I actually bumped him up a little bit when I went back and watched him. I was like, he's better than I remember. You know, he was, he was good and I was excited about all the tools. Pro Day was great, but I went back and watched those one-on-ones and I thought, man, those are the, those are the top tackles coming out and he made beating all of them look easy. Yeah. So if I, I remember getting, correctly, I think I had him in my same, cause I kind of group him in tiers. I yeah, think I had was, him and Aziz in the same tier and they ended up getting both of them. Yeah, and that's the thing is, as you think about this draft, it won't matter that Aziz went in the second and Ellerson Smith went in the fourth. If they both develop, and not saying they will because the hit rate in the draft is 35 40% on average, but if both of those guys hit and they end up being your edge duo, even if one of them is, is really high flight and one of them is what we think is average, living up to their potential, that's going to save the Giants a ton of money and and give them really good production. So that's that was a great get. The the middle slice of this Giants draft sandwich was was just money. Uh, and then Brightwell, I, you know, Wayne Gallman moves on. Wayne Gallman was a guy that they leaned on heavily last year and performed really really well. But leaves as a free agent, they needed to kind of restock the cupboard. Um, they apparently were one of those teams that DJ was talking about that saw something in Brightwell. And then Rodarius Williams is just really toolsy, right? He's not polished, but this is what you do in the sixth round, right? In the middle, you go for guys with skills, guys with size, guys with length, and you see if you can develop them. Giants like what they saw in Rodarius Williams, tall guy, good reach, and they pick him up in the middle of the sixth. He'll probably start on special teams, but a guy that could develop as a sort of rotational outside corner for them. So overall, strong class. Again, we had a little bit of a quibble with Tony at the top, but the rest of it, boy, it's, yeah, second solid class in a row for Gettleman and the Giants. Is it weird that I thought that 
Williams was more of a safety than a corner? No, no, not at all with the way that they played him. Um, I I don't think so. And again, it used to really make me angry when teams, whether it was college or pro, listed a guy as DB. When it's like, yeah, he's he's both. He's whatever. I was like, could you be more specific at least? Is he a, you know, because I'm, I'm trying to always classify guys. And if they have skills in both, that's great. But is he an outside corner or is he a straight slot slash nickel? Is he a, you know, 230 pound safety that plays in the box? Or is this a guy that can go 30 yards deep and run with, you know, your number two wide receiver? Right. So, and then they're just like, they don't even tell you corner safety. They just say DB. (laughs) I'm like, "Eh." well, he, um, who I, God, who's the guy on Miami who was a, a, Big dude, corner converted to safety. Let me let me look it up right now. Um, God, it, Eric Rowe. That was the vibe I got with him, where I was like, because Eric oh. Rowe started as a corner, yeah, and then they they basically used him as like a matchup strong safety against tight ends, and I was like, I kind of like him for that because all the other safeties on the Giants roster, Jabril, Logan Ryan, Julian Love, Xavier McKinney, they're all good players, but it's like, is that the dude that I want matching up with Dallas Goddard? I almost kind of feel like Rodarius would be better in that kind of role where it's like every single week, it's like that tight end's your dude. On third and seven, you're on the field for that dude. I I kind of want to use him that way. I wouldn't argue. It's so funny because I was thinking about the draft and you said Miami. (laughs) I was thinking about the Hurricanes. Oh, yeah. And you meant the Dolphins and you're like, Eric Rowe. And I was like, he plays for the... Oh, that Miami. Other Miami. (laughs) Anyways, yeah. No, there's a lot of those guys out there that... um, uh, I just saw in the news uh, this last week um, that uh, Ross Cockrell, who's a player that I liked him as a corner when he came out. I always thought he was a little bit better. He was he was drafted lower. He's been on three or four different teams. He's had some good reps on tape, but he's never really found like the niche. He's, he hasn't found the fit for himself. And I tweeted this out. He goes to Tampa. They're playing him as a safety. He ended up having three picks the other day in practice playing as a safety. And everybody was like, yeah, it's not a fluke. He's been playing really well throughout OTAs and camp. And I'm like, is that, you know, it's it's kind of that move, right? Is is this the thing that really puts Ross Cockrell in? Like, he's not going to start at safety for them. But, you know, there's a lot of defenses that run three safeties a lot of the time in the NFL. Is he going to be that third safety that comes in and can play, you know, inside, outside, forward, back for them and and really have versatility and can can show some impact and, Again, it gets back to it, and it's more that DB label that I was, you know, just railing against. But it's it's true, right? They're they're more positionless um, than they used to be, and and that's becoming a truer label, I think. So, why don't we get into uh, their undrafted free agent additions? Um, I'll be honest; this is one of the only UDFA classes where I did not watch any of them. Brett Heggie from Florida, Jake Burton from Baylor and UCLA, who's a transfer. And then uh, Raymond Johnson the third, the edge from Georgia Southern. I will say Raymond Johnson was on my list to get to, but this class had like 40 edge rushers. And I just, I, I could not get to him in time before the draft. And then I just forgot to watch him after he went UDFA. Uh, did you watch any of these dudes? Because this is one of the only UDFA class where I got nothing. Yeah, I, I mean... Peggy, I saw because we watched a lot of Florida, right? But I, I never 
did a, and you know this about me, I, I prefer to watch one guy when I'm watching folks. Sometimes I'll watch a unit. We do that to, we did with the Notre Dame offensive line. So never focused on Hagee. And Raymond Johnson, I only watched a little bit of game action. I didn't do any kind of all 22 on him. And I certainly didn't do an individual workup. Because like you said, I got to, I think, 28 of the many more edges and went, I, I got to watch something else. I'm going to run out of time. Like, you know, 30, <laughs> 30 edges is a lot. So I got to about 28 and I was like, I can't keep doing. So I watched him super briefly, but I wouldn't, not enough to say, oh, this is this is Raymond Johnson's game, right? A couple of plays, impression. You know, and for UDFA, I don't think that's terrible, uh, but I don't have strong opinions about any of the three. You know what's crazy? For as deep as this edge class was, and it was one of the deepest edge classes in a while, like there wasn't like a Chase Young or a Miles Garrett at the top. I mean, Jalen Phillips mm -hmm. was close. Um, but in terms of depth, this edge class was insane. Next year's edge class that's coming up, even deeper. It's it is absurd, and it, and it does have a player at the top who, if everything goes as we expect it to, will be talked about in that conversation. Yeah, Kayvon Thibodeau from Oregon, which I know. I mean, God, we've been talking about him since he was a freshman at this point, but uh, he's he's that dude. He's something. <laughs> he's absolutely that dude. Uh, what do we get into their veteran free agency additions? They had twenty four signings which is up there with houston i think for some of the biggest free agent classes in terms of outside signings and retentions uh adory jackson three years 39 million right up there at the top uh he was one of the more curious um guys that ended up on the market i would say like i didn't expect tennessee to let him go because it's not like they were swimming in corner depth but lo and behold you know, Giants said, okay, we'll take him. Give me this corner that runs 4-3. And at least in the past, early in his career, shown a lot of ability, uh, you know, kind of taking on a, a cheaper rehab price. He's like, what, $13 million a year? That's a bargain basement corner compared to what some of these guys are making these days. So especially with the cap going up a couple of years, you look back in two seasons, that deal's going to look like an absolute just crazy, crazy value. So I love the Adore Jackson pick. Um, they also brought in Chris Milton, his Tennessee or uh, his teammate from Tennessee, I should say. Um, Ifiado Adengbo from Minnesota. They got Colin Gillespie, the fullback from Houston, who was kind of a fan favorite in Houston. Really good dude. Great personality. Uh, great special teamer as well. Uh, Zach Fulton, they brought in who has since retired. He's one of the, the wave of retirees they had this week. Uh, I should also mention Joe Looney, the other veteran offensive lineman they brought in that then retired um while we're at it todd davis veteran linebacker they brought in that retired uh they also brought in reggie raglan from detroit still hanging on the league is kind of that rough and tumble you know inside linebacker that can't really move in space but if you're running anywhere within five yards of him he's going to make the tackle uh they got ryan anderson from washington really um god who, who does he remind me of who's the kid from bc that we saw at the senior bowl uh, a couple years ago, the, the edge from BC that not super athletic, but God, he played his ass off. You remember? Oh, um, he's super tall. He was the taller of the two. He wasn't the short one. Cause again, they had a pair. Yeah. I can't remember his name, but he reminds me a lot of that dude. I mean, huh. or at least that dude reminded me of Ryan Anderson where it's like, 
Physical talent, yeah. not great, but God, he just played his ass off. Uh, yeah. Devontae Booker, they brought in from Las Vegas. They got Mike Glennon in from Jacksonville. Uh, Corey Clement from Philly. Jordan Peters from the Jets. Kyle Rudolph, they brought in as a veteran tight end addition from the Vikings. Uh, Kenny Galladay was the big, big free agent that has since, you know, been dealing with a, a hamstring pull. Four years, $72 million. Uh, I'm trying to think, okay, if he waited one more year, if he just took like a one-year mercenary deal and went down to Kansas City, do you think he would have got more next year? Mm, I, or is this the best Kenny Galladay was going to get? Early in the process, I thought there was absolutely no way he was going to get uh, anywhere close to what I would call a market deal just because of the suppression of the cap. The cap went down for the first time in forever. Um, teams had a lot of leverage. It's the second very good wide receiver draft in as many years. And leverage for wide receivers just looked to be kind of at an all-time low, free agent wide receivers. Um, Giants came around, stepped up, got him, I think, a better deal than I thought he could get this year. Would he get a little bit more next year when the cap rebounds as everybody expects? Yeah, probably a little bit. Um, but, you know... You look around the league and, you know, careers are so short and you can get hurt and there goes all your leverage, right? You know, if Kenny Galladay, God forbid, went out there and, you know, hurt his knee like Saquon did and was on the shelf, right, after a one-year deal and was coming off an ACL, like, there, there goes his leverage. And if it's another good wide receiver class and GMs know they can go get, you know, game-breaking talent for a really low financial hit in the draft, you know, an injured veteran free agent wide receiver. So, you know, bird in hand, right? Sign it up, take the guaranteed money you got. Um, I think he probably could have made a little bit more next year, but there, there's just no sure things. Um, I'm sort of more worried about the destination overall, right? He he prioritized money and I'm, I'm not going to fault him for that. That's absolutely a personal decision, but um Daniel Jones, when he's protected, throws a very pretty deep ball. So Kenny Galladay could be really productive this year because he he thrives in that. He's he's a good receiver all over the field, but he is absolutely a very good deep receiver. Um, the Giants in general don't strike me as a juggernaut offensively. So, you know, wide receivers are judged largely by their production, by their numbers. And, and the destination of the Giants is certainly not necessarily the most productive place he could have ended up. It is the place where he probably got the most money and good for him. But down the road, is that going to look like a good thing based on, you know, say it doesn't work this year, like we said at the top. And, you know, they basically reshuffle the deck. I'm not going to say blow it up because there is quite a bit of talent on the Giants roster, but you know, they say Daniel Jones is not our guy. They start over, they get a new quarterback, possibly a new coach. Then ugh, that's another couple of years before you get back to prominence more, most likely. So um, destination bothered me more, I'd say, than the money. Um, but you can kind of see the patterns in what they did in free agency, right? We talked about Wayne Gallman moving on. Hey, they <laughs> they draft a running back late. They pick up three veteran running backs. They're just, you know, they're throwing stuff at the wall to see what sticks. Um, Alfred Morris is immortal at this point. He just keeps <laughs> floating around. He started year 10, I think, right? I think it's yeah. year 10, yeah. And was super productive last year in short spurts and uh, surprised me in that way. But yeah, they they go out and get Devontae Booker, Corey Clement, and Alfred Morris and, you know, draft Brightwell. And, and they'll, they'll have somebody at RB2 and RB3. They'll be set there. Um, 
Cole Hikatini is one of the players that I really liked coming out. They got him from Dallas. Um, I think he has the potential to be a decent move tight end. Is he going to, you know, displace or replace Evan Ingram? No, but he's a decent backup uh, in that in that mold. And is there a more Joe Judge player in the league than Reggie Ragland? <laughs> like, no, that's I, that. That is like a lineup fit, and and it's the you know the Joe Judge Matt Patricia connection, right? Because a couple of guys that they got were from Detroit. Ragland's one, and Danny Shelton's the other. Right. And, you know, he talked to his buddy, Patricia. Patricia said, yeah, I, you know, I like them. They run this role in the defense that you're familiar with. And he goes and signs them. So that stuff happens all the time. But interesting class just in terms of number. Right. You talked about it uh, when you started off the free agent class. That's a lot of free agents that remakes. You know, if you're talking about a 90 man roster, that's a quarter of your team. Uh, if you're talking about, you know, maybe two thirds of these guys making a 53, that's significant. a significant portion of your 53 and there is a lot of turnover, but it's, it's a big free agency class. Um, obviously all the money went to Galladay and to a Dory Jackson, who, again, they, they sort of didn't expect. He was one of those guys that pops up on the market and they were like, let's go get him. Um, they had a big free agent signing last year, Bradbury who played really, really well. So maybe now they've got their corners locked in, um, which allows them to do some things with coverage that is going to let that line, uh, have a little bit more time to hunt. We'll see how that balances out. Um, but interesting mix of of draft and free agency. Not a ton from the UDFA side, but they reload. And I I really just think it's about whether or not they align behind Judge. Right? If they if they all pull in the same direction, there's enough talent on this team to make some serious noise. And and yeah, Daniel Jones has to do it. We all know that. But you know they could. I wouldn't be surprised if they did. If there's some cracks in the armor and there's you know a bunch of people in the locker room who aren't buying in at this point, um, Joe Judge is going to have some. Joe Judge and his staff are going to have some some tough sledding. This is just one of those teams where it's like I can't figure them out because I can see two distinct possibilities and I don't see any <laughs> middle ground where either they yeah. win they win the NFC East because Daniel Jones becomes who they drafted and, you know, Kenny Galladay gets better and Darius Slayton's better and Tony pops off and becomes a crazy yak threat and Saquon comes back and he's healthy and great. And the offensive line steps up because, you know, they have a new offensive line coach this year, or I should say it's a different offensive line coach situation than what they had last year. And, you know, the defense is still great and the special teams are still great. Like this is, yeah, they could win the East and be really damn good. Or, it can be the complete opposite. And I have no idea what's going to happen. All I know is that Dave Gettleman has built a very talented roster. All credit to him. Uh, there's been a lot of veterans that have thrown their hat in the ring in support of Joe Judge, contrary to what the whispers are elsewhere. So maybe it's an overblown issue and the retirements don't mean anything. And Daniel Jones, you know, what is it, year year three now, year four, like maybe he takes a step forward. Like I just, I have no idea. I cannot project the Giants. I'm not going to say they're going to be bad, but I don't know how good they're going to be. <laughs> and I guess we'll just yeah. find out. Well, I, I think it's reflective, right? I think the comments about all this preseason, Toma, which look, it's it's a lot of noise, right? Preseason in general is a lot of noise. And, and every year, two weeks to a month into the season, right? In through weeks three and four of the regular season, we start to say, oh yeah, that was garbage, <laughs> right? <laughs> that was a bunch of fluff or, you know, nope, 
they were serious about that. And you start to sort the sort of wheat from the chaff, right? You, you, you know, that was a real thing. That was a, you know, that was really people saying, no, this kid's got it. Or, you know, no, they're going to take a jump this year as a team or all the other stuff, which is, oh, he's in the best shape of his life, which we hear every year in camp, right? And you start to sort it out. The week, weeks one and two, you get those really weird results where people sort of over-index and then it starts to settle week three and week four. And I think we'll see after the first month of the season, are are the Giants kind of girding up and getting ready for a run and everybody's sort of sorted it out and lined up behind Joe Judge or are they still super messy and don't look together as as a team, as a unit? Um, and then we we see the kind of, you know, maybe this is going to be the alternate result thing. <laughs> well, why don't we get into um, another clearly stable franchise where nothing is going wrong ever? Uh, the Philadelphia Eagles. Uh, man, talk about hard to project teams. This, this thing can also go in one of very different directions, <laughs> either in the good or the bad side of the spectrum. Uh, we'll start off with our front office and coaching review. Howie Roseman going into year 12. Well, technically, I should say year 12. There was a few years in the middle there in the Chip Kelly era where he wasn't general manager. He was executive president of like football operations or whatever his job title was. But if we're just going to go from like first year that he was GM to now it's, it's 12 years. So he's been there forever survived like four different regimes or, or something, you know, it was Andy Reed and then it was chip and then it was Peterson. And then, and then now with Nick Sirianni, who's in his first year, Jamal Singleton uh, is the assistant head coach and running backs coach. Uh, he's in his first year with Sirianni kind of a theme, by the way, around the league where it's like running backs, coaches or assistant head coaches. Have you noticed that? There's a couple that did the assistant head coach thing. I understand why it's come on. Um, that may confuse some of the folks that are watching and listening. Um, there are rules about levels in coaching. And a lot of times if you want to keep somebody or you want them to have that extra tick of experience, right? A, a slightly expanded slate of responsibilities so that they get looks in the future, the en vogue move is to attach the assistant head coach tag to whatever they are, because typically a running backs coach, even a special teams coach, isn't necessarily going to get play in those head coaching carousels, right? They're not going to pick a, a position coach that hasn't had coordinator experience. So if you want to elevate a guy's profile, you attach the assistant head coach. Sometimes it's an offensive or defensive coordinator, but more times than not, you're right. It's either a running backs coach. We've seen a linebackers coach, um, a defensive line coach has the assistant head coach tag. So um, it's, it's just one of those things in the modern NFL where it's applied on, I don't, I don't want to say probably about half the teams have an assistant head coach and it's to elevate that guy's profile and share some of those responsibilities because look, a modern NFL team has a lot going on and the head coach is is the front and center he's the representative he's the a lot of times the community and press liaison but he also has to sort of keep an eye on the whole roster it's a lot to do and and during given week it's nice to be able to delegate some of those things to to another guy and that's the assistant head coach we've also got uh shane steichen in his first year at oc he was the chargers oc last year where it was bombs away very vertical uh, passing game oriented over there in LA. Uh, I'll be interested to see if they try to continue that trend in Philly because you got Devonta, 
who runs 4-4. You've got Jalen Rager, who runs 4-4. might be 4-3. Uh, Travis Fulgham, not the fastest dude, but still, oddly, a very good vertical threat. Uh, and then you've got, like, three other receivers, like Quez Watkins, super fast. John Hightower, super fast. Like, the only slow receiver that also isn't a great vertical threat they have on the roster is J.J. Arcega-Whiteside. So it could still be a very vertical passing game. And I guess with at least most of the offensive line being healthy again, uh, they might actually have time for Jalen Hurts to throw it down the field this year. I'd be very intrigued to see what that offense looks like because at least the Chargers offense last year was super exciting. It helps when you have Justin Herbert at quarterback, but still, I'm just saying systematically, super exciting. Uh, And then Jonathan Gannon, who's in his first year at defensive coordinator as well. So very, very young staff. Um, Not a whole lot of guys that have experience at either head coach or coordinator positions. You know, it might be a year here or there, but uh, I'm, this is one of those staffs where I'm very intrigued to see how they grow together because it's a lot of, a lot of youth and a lot of inexperience, but well, I say the word inexperience. Sometimes when you have these young staffs that don't have a lot of history on them, they're also a lot harder to prepare for. So I would not be surprised if at least early on, like September, the Eagles, you know, rip off a couple wins that maybe people aren't expecting because these guys, we don't have a whole lot of history on them in terms of knowing tendencies, knowing what they like, what they don't like. They might be kind of a sneaky September team, especially if they're healthy. Very, very interested in that. Um, Let's get into the Eagles draft, which was also like, I mean, talk about high upside. Good Lord. Devonta Smith, 10th overall, one of the two best receivers in this class. Phenomenal talent. Don't, don't tell me about how much he weighs. I don't care. He gets off press better than everybody else in this class, except maybe Jamar Chase, but he does it in a different way than Jamar Chase. Jamar will just beat people up at the line, whereas Devonta, you just can't touch him extraordinary receiver prospect. Um, I think the, the the Marvin Harrison comparisons are pretty good in terms of play style, not to mention build. Uh, Landon Dickerson, ass kicker extraordinaire. Probably either him or Elijah Vera Tucker are the two best interior line prospects in this class. They play different positions, but uh, Landon Dickerson is just an absolute monster. You can put him at center. You can put him at guard. He'll be successful either way. I'm not entirely sure where he's where he's going to play for the Eagles. I haven't I haven't checked in on where they're going to have him. But the fact that he can play all those positions at a Pro Bowl level, phenomenal pick at the top of the second round. The only reason he even fell that far is because he's coming off an ACL. Uh, Milton Williams is God. Where was he on the RAS score? It was like number two out of like 1,200 defensive tackle prospects. Just an absolute freak of nature athlete like Aaron Donald tier level athlete uh Zach McPherson the corner from Texas Tech another just super athletic dude Kenneth Gainwell I mean Memphis would you say Memphis is an RB factory at this point EJ well it's the sort of offensive weapon factory right (laughs) because it's these guys that can play in the slot can play in the backfield they play a little bit of both um, and they transition, but every year there is a player at Memphis now that is garnering and has been for three or four years now. It's, it's, this isn't, you know, new as of this year or last year, 
Um, but Gainwell's really interesting just because of specifically because of Philadelphia's history with small backs that are, I, I would say I use the term electric, but also pass catchers. They they have a deep love <laughs> of that position and have drafted many of them, have have wanted some that they weren't able to draft. They have some uh I would say franchise greats in that role. And they continue to kind of, regardless, like you said, all these staff turnovers, they they always seem to go for the, you know, slightly undersized back that has some real receiving chops and a bunch of speed. So Gainwell, uh, you know, we'll see, might be the next in the in the line there in Philadelphia for that. They also got uh, a trio of sixth rounders in Marlin Tuya Pelotu out of USC. He's basically a human tree stump. It's like, Six one three ten somewhere around that range, just super hard to dig out. Uh, Taron Jackson, can you can you call him an undersized edge when it's okay? He's six two, but he's also like two seventy. It, it's yeah. it's one of the weirdest edge rusher builds I can remember. Where it's like, okay, he's really thick, but really short, not super explosive, but still just wins because. Dudes with that kind of power that are also really short and prevent and present a small target to an offensive tackle, sometimes they're just hard to block just because they're so oddly shaped. And I, I think he's kind of one of those guys. And then they also got Jacoby Stevens, the safety at LSU, probably going to be more of a special teamer than, than somebody who gets reps. But what do you think about that trio of six rounders? Uh, I like the defensive tackle from USC. They They had two. They had... You know, the penetrator and the guy that just occupies, this was the occupier, right, um, with a lot of power, hard to root out. Um, Teron Jackson is a guy that I put a thread on Twitter about, not sort of on purpose. I started watching him one day, and I was like, damn. And so I screenshotted it and threw it up on Twitter, and like <laughs> 10 minutes later in the same tape, I was like, damn. And pretty soon I had about eight of those. And so I strung them together into a thread. Um, not really meaning to, it wasn't like a huge Teron Jackson fan, but has some really interesting, well, he has an interesting build, but he's got some really interesting elements to his game inside, outside some spins. Um, yeah, deadly spin move. And it really is, I'll be fascinated to see how they play him again. Is the defense going to be the same that we've seen in Philadelphia. There's going to be some changes under the new staff. Are they going to deploy him sort of as a straight up DE, right? Or are they going to put him out wide, give him a little bit more space, have him try and come inside? Um, fascinating player and a great value in the sixth for sure. And then Jacoby Stevens is uh, one of those guys that I got to him late in the draft. And I thought, boy, if you employ him as a, as a close to the line wrecker, he, well, he can do he can't that. do anything else <laughs> that's the thing yeah, but he can do that like he you can call him undersized linebacker if you want to or you know heavy safety dimebacker whatever but if you employ him as that sort of agent of chaos within the triangle sort of between the hashes and from about eight yards deep move him around and just have him attack he makes a lot of plays like it, going through his tape. The consistency was was interesting, but he makes plays. And I mean, big plays, TFLs, um, big run stops at the line through open gaps like he he fires and hits. So he's an interesting player and that 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 skill set lines up really well, like you said, with special teams, which if you're going to be picked in the sixth round, you're going to have to be good to earn your spot there. 
but I could see him coming in and again, those three safety defenses and him being the fire guy, right? Move around, look for a gap. If it's not your guy, get in there and just wreck crap. People were comparing him um, where they're like, man, if you love Kyle Duggar last year, you'll love Jacoby Stevens. And I was like, okay, eh. similar kind of build. Yeah, same neighborhood, wrong house. But D- <laughs> Duggar's just so different than, yeah. I mean, basically everybody. Like, not just athletically, but in terms of skill, play style. Like, Kyle Duggar is a star. I know a lot of people don't pay attention to him up in New England. You're gonna. He is a star. And it, he's gonna he's gonna build legacy, right? Oh, he's yeah. gonna be one of those guys that two and three years from now, people are like, Oh, I didn't think he started off that hot. And it's like, well, the he's Patriots good. the Patriots didn't start off that hot that year. But if you go back and ISO on Duggar on plays he made in his rookie season, they weren't rookie plays. He's like a 215 pound, like he's is he is a safety, but he's like a 215 pound safety that was taking on guards and shucking them and making the tackle. And it's like, as much as, as good as Patrick Chung was for them, like Patrick Chung wasn't doing that. Like very few safeties I can remember ever did that. And Kyle Duggar is one of them. He's, he's insane. So, yeah, so I don't, I don't uh, think Stevens is in his league, but no, Stevens no. does have a very interesting role. And in, and going back and looking at his LSU tape, he's, there were a couple of safeties like that last year. And I think, again, consistency-wise is why he dropped. Um, and maybe you could say limitation, right? He's not the guy you necessarily want going, you know, 25 yards down the sideline with a receiver. But he he's a good football player, right? He's a very good football player who can have some impact. Just try not to get him. Try not. I, I know this sounds so stupid, but a lot of coaching staffs won't to try not to get him in the spaces where he's going to get absolutely crushed and maximize him in the spaces where he can just blow stuff up because he has that skill set. Rounding off uh, their seventh round pick, Patrick Johnson, uh, outside linebacker from Tulane. I mean, sixth and seventh round is usually littered with linebackers for special teams. So that's probably why he was brought in. I did not get to watch him because Tulane tape was, harder to come by than you think. Um, and I only, I was only able to get four games, but even then by the time I was like able to, to get to him, the draft was like the next day. And I was like, okay, well, I guess I just ran out of time. Uh, you know, some of these teams I can get literally every single game, like Alabama Tulane. I'm just lucky to get four, like full disclosure, but, uh, overall kind of bird's eye view of the draft. You know, you got Devonta, you got Landon, you got Milton, Gainwell, we like. Uh, Tui Pelotu, very easy to project role player. Taron Jackson, super intriguing. I love this draft. I think they did a great job. I didn't agree with every pick, but like overall, I think they got at least three starters. Yeah, if Landon stays healthy, I didn't I didn't talk at all about Landon. I, I absolutely agree with everything you said. Tremendous star. If you take medical out of it, which you can't in his case, but if you do, if you simply look at the tape, he's what you would call a five tool offensive lineman. If you're using the baseball analogy, right? The five tool player, he's (laughs) dominant at center, really, really good at guard. Um, It's the injury history that, that even made him available anywhere past the middle of round one. And he had, you know, 
four serious injuries at Alabama. And you can't overlook that. If he somehow is that guy that gets to the pros and stays healthy, this draft is going to be phenomenal because Devonta Smith, I'm with you. We'll talk about that a little bit at the end of the show. Like, just don't don't tell me about why he can't because boy, can he. Yeah. <laughs> and he does. Um, Milton Williams is was the first guy that I was like, well, it's a little higher than I would have grabbed Milton Williams uh, just for me because unlimited athletic potential, but a sort of very narrow... Um, very sort of narrow range or window where he makes plays and he's going to need to expand that range. And and look, everybody's got something. Um, Gainwell, super versatile. Uh, I think they can find the role for him and he's, he's definitely a weapon. He's going to give them some great versatility because you can line him up in the slot. You can line him up in the backfield. You can motion him and have him in both places, really confuse the defense. Um, we talked about the guys in the sixth round and Patrick Johnson, I did watch and getting that guy in the seventh, um, unless there's something I don't know about was a tremendous value. He's one of those guys that, is he going to be a, a starter and a star? I don't think so. Is he going to be one of those guys that in two or three years, uh, if he sticks on the team, are you going to look and say, they got that guy in the seventh? Like that guy looks like, you know, that guy looks like a solid mid rounder. He's one of those guys that comes in and plays a lot of downs for them makes a couple of plays, you know, every month that you're like, oh, where'd that guy come from? And you're in the seventh round. So don't know why he slipped that far. His tape was not the tape of a seventh rounder. I would have had him fourth or fifth, uh, probably fifth. I would have been real comfortable anytime after about mid fifth and they got him in the seventh. So uh, like you said, tons of talent, top to bottom, some potential huge impact players at the top hinges a lot on whether Landon stays healthy uh, but all the way down, they got guys, they refilled the ranks. You can, you said very clear to project, right? A lot of these guys, their projection is pretty clear. And the guys that aren't, it's more like just because we don't know how they're going to use them. Looking at the UDFA class they brought in this, this one's confusing to me because I think we highlighted their UDFA class a while back. We did because they got Jamie Newman and they got Trayvon Grimes who you and I both loved, at least at that value. Like, Trayvon Grimes was a fantastic receiver of Florida. He's like 6'4", he's got speed, great route runner, strong, strong contested catcher. I had him in, like, my tier three of receivers overall, like, just below mm -hmm. Elijah Moore. He was awesome. And then he got cut as a UDFA. I'm like, did what happened? Like, what did he do? Uh, he got I, hurt. So it was an injury waiver? Is that what it was? Because yep. I just saw so, he got released. I didn't see why. Yeah, and it happened really quickly. And and again, we did highlight these this class as one of our top UDFA classes because they got two guys with draftable grades at premium positions. They got a quarterback and a you know very talented wide receiver. And we were like, get out of here. Yeah. And Newman definitely had highs and lows. We talked about that in our quarterback episode pre-draft. Like, But his highs were as high as anybody in this draft, and I mean anybody. Now, he didn't hit them all the time, but when everything came together for Newman, there were just wow moments, right? And physical talent out the wazoo. I mean, he's, you know, big, strong-armed, mobile, uh, able to take a hit. Like, um, just he has every bit of tool that you would want from a quarterback and 
showed tape, right? Now he had a bit of a checkered thing where he transferred and then opted out. So he never played for the other school. And in a COVID year, I get it, but there was so much potential. You get that guy as UDFA. If he hits even as a backup, it's tremendous. Well, he makes it like a month in Philadelphia and they're like, eh. and I was like, oh, and he's, okay. he's still not signed, by the way. He's still a free agent. No, he is still a street free agent. So there's something going on there because there is still a shortage of quarterback talent in the NFL. Uh, you know, again, I don't think Newman's going to come in anywhere and be a starter. If he is, your team is in desperate straits. But, you know, as a developmental backup, as a guy you keep and hope nobody poaches off the practice squad, like based on his on-film, on-field performance, huge value doesn't even make it a month like most guys they're going to wait until the cut downs to let go just so they get an extended look see how they process all the information he didn't make it a month like uh, of actual activities before they were like get out of here and it's like okay man he's not even a camp arm really yeah i (laughs) I don't know what that was all about i haven't heard anything not nothing usually there's a whisper about this or that or whatever i've heard zip he just got cut he's gone and it's like, okay, Grimes, on the other hand, got hurt. It wasn't great uh, early. It looked like that was going to go through. Again, they're looking for folks that are healthy during camp. And if he was a draft pick, they might have just stashed him on IR. He's a UDFA. They signed him to an injury waiver and injury release settlement. So when he gets healthy again, I would love to see him make the rotation because I do think, just like you, that he was underrated, that he has talent. He has a lot of traits that teams are looking for in the modern pass game. So it, it is a weird class, right? You go from these two stars, the guys that had draftable grades to, you know, six weeks later and neither of them are there. And you're like, oh, like Jamon Osmond from Texas A&M. I watched him. He's okay. Jack Stoll, I think is just a camp body. Uh, Kreider from Indiana, like could be one of those glue guys that sticks practice squatter, you know, makes himself a role, goes from team to team. And then the tackle for Buffalo, um, Awasika, I think. Uh, Again, watching all 22, you don't get the pronunciations. Their offensive line was fascinating. In fact, I sent you something on their offensive line philosophy after I watched another guy we're going to talk about later, Jared Patterson, because Jared Patterson, the the University of Buffalo run game was tremendously productive. And it's uh, a lot of times uh, in a run game, uh, it's centered around uh how the guards move right whether it's pole system gap system iso buffalo uses a center focused run game and it was so interesting to watch and again uh i was the guy on the edge there but patterson in that offense and his backup uh who is going to be draftable this year who i actually think might be more talented just such a fun run game he was part of that so um again a guy that probably can carve out a role, maybe going to start on the practice squad. But uh, as we are seeing from mm, certain teams around the league, offensive line depth is kind of a thing you need to have. Cough, cough, Chicago. Good God. <laughs> as they're as they're able to dress like four linemen today for practice. Um, anyways, could, could be a guy that, um, look, is he going to come in? Is he going to be a starter? Is he going to be, you know, great handling, you know, NFL caliber speed edge rushers, uh, not right now, but uh, showed a lot of movement in the run game, um, and you know could be a guy that develops over time. Uh, obviously, Philadelphia <laughs> trying to fill the cupboard because of what happened last year with their offensive line, but uh, a name to keep an eye on. Now, the veteran 
free agents that they brought in. Uh, not the biggest class, but I do think that they did um, a, a decent job of kind of filling in some holes here and there. Uh, Richard Roger, uh, excuse me, Richard Rogers, they retained for only a million dollars, which considering the Zachert situation, he might be a more pertinent, pertinent retention than maybe people originally thought. Because I'm still not convinced that Zacherts won't be traded. Because Zach seems to not want to be there. And the reason why he reported to camp is, you know, those those new, you know, fines that teams can't waive anymore. Which, side note, that CBA was so bad for the players. <laughs> so bad for the Like, you can't hold out anymore. And the owners are basically get to say, like, oh, well, our hands are tied. We have to find you. It's like, yeah, the owners fought for that. They fought for the ability to not get out of waiving fines so that they basically absolved themselves of responsibility and put all the pressure on players to just show up or cost themselves like 50 grand a day. That CBA is terrible for players. And I think they all just realized it right now that they took holdouts off the table. They don't get to do it anymore. So good luck negotiating contracts. Like you, your leverage is gone, bro. It's gone. Yeah, I get it. Get it when you sign. Uh, under the current CBA, the only answer is get it when you sign. And if you don't get it when you sign, with career, again, the pressure on players being because careers are so short, you're literally the only thing you can do is sit on your hands and say, I won't play. And there are very few players, if any, who will take a shot in the NFL, which is a rare thing in the first place, and just say, on principle... I'm going to stick it to you by shortening my career and sitting on my hand. Like there are so few players, if any, that will do that. And that's it. That's all they got anymore. And it's going to cost them money. Like it's going to be a moral stand, a financial hit. Like it's, it's not good. The old, like, Hey, I'm not going to show up. And then I'm going to pressure you back to the table. And maybe you give me a little bit more money or take a year off my deal. Nah. I mean, even Aaron Rodgers, right? I think Aaron Rodgers is the proof of the pudding for that. Right. The, coming off an MVP season at quarterback, like he got a couple of very small concessions, but the Packers basically get their quarterback for one more year, which is exactly what they wanted. They didn't have to give up a ton to do it. Because the Packers didn't lose anything. They're right back to what they wanted, which is we get Aaron back for 2021. And then yeah, Jordan that was the main focus. That's all they wanted. The yeah. Packers lost nothing. It's, it's like Aaron. Yeah, I guess Aaron got what he wanted because he could basically choose his destination. Yeah. But and they have, I love this. They have verbally agreed to trade him after the season if he is quote unquote still unhappy. That sentence, like, by wow. the way, that, <laughs> that sentence is the only thing allowing Broncos fans to sleep right now. Is that they're like, well, 2022 will get him. We passed this, on this Justin is, Fields for oh, Aaron Rodgers in 2022. This is the this is the dumb and dumber quote, right? So you're telling me there's a chance. Oh God. Yeah, not great. But of the veteran free agents they brought in, you talked about one, Ryan Kerrigan, right? I think this is a bit underrated because Kerrigan is the sort of immortal pass rusher. He knows the division. He was always annually underrated with the Washington football team. Still has talent. Is he the guy who was five, six years ago? No. Can he contribute in a rotational role as a veteran, which Philadelphia is pretty good at managing? Oh, yeah. yeah. Like, that's a good get for them, and almost nobody's talking about it. They backed up their quarterback depth with Flacco and Mullins. 
I actually kind of like the Mullins pick. I think he might jive with Sirianni's system. Um, he shows some things in San Francisco. Uh, Raven Clark, again, throw stuff at the offensive line cupboard. Like, don't let it happen again, right? Don't get down to the nubs where we were at the end of the season where everybody was just running for their life. Uh, and Wentz, you know, looked like he was playing with his hair on fire because he knew he was going to get hit every other play. Um, Obi Melifonwu, big shout out to Lester Wilfong, my editor at, at uh, Windy City. He was a huge Obi stan in the draft. Eh, he's taking a little bit of humble pie, but Obi's still in the league, Lester. It's okay. Uh, and then Richard Rogers, who you mentioned. Um, Hassan Ridgeway, another one. They retained him. He was theirs, but um, some some defensive line depth and again, attacking defensive tackle. That's really his calling card. Steven Nelson, late add in the process, right? Huge value. He was floating around. He's kind of that last mid-level experienced veteran corner that still has some still has some good plays in him. And they get him for one year, three million because the, it was, the three million part was like that was the the value. I was like, okay, Steven, yeah, decent player, but three million. Yeah. Good at, God. At, that's a steal. Like, and they just got it because again. Teams are running out of money. It's a short cap year. He had he was one of those guys that had had some visits, had some interviews, there was talk. Uh, Chicago kicked the tires on him a little bit, trying to, again, add depth to the backfield. He had some choices, but apparently not that many. If he took a $3 million deal at a, at a position where, you know, eight or $9 million is, I would say, low to mid-level, you know, money. And he's going to play for them. Like, he's he's going to do downs. He's not just going to sit on the bench. So they got a tremendous value late late in the offseason. Yeah, so overall, I, I thought the Eagles had a encouraging offseason. Again, I we're not entirely sure what to expect out of this coaching staff yet because they're all very young, but that potentially could be an advantage for them because... There, there's not a whole long history to prepare for here. You know, like there, there's some older coaches like, yeah, like let me throw a Dean Pease, for example. Dean Pease, great defensive coordinator, but there's like 20 years of tape on that. <laughs> like you people that know Dean Pease have a good feel for what Dean Pease likes to do. You know, Wing Martindale, you own up against the Ravens this year. You know what to prepare for. It is pressure, pressure, pressure. Uh, you know, Kyle Shanahan, you're going up against a Shanahan offense. You kind of know what to prepare for, but all these guys, you know, Steichen, Gannon, Sirianni, you're not entirely sure what they're going to do yet. So it might, it might take a, like a month or so for the league to figure them out. So I think that might be a little bit of an advantage for them. Uh, the draft I thought was highly encouraging. They filled some holes in veteran free agency overall, pretty solid offseason for the Eagles. Are they up to the level of a Washington or a Dallas can't say that for sure. Cause there's still a lot of questions to be answered uh, like that quarterback and everything and coaching and everything like that. But I don't think they're going to be bad. I think they're, they're at minimum going to be better than they were last year. Yeah. What you said about the coaching staff really lands with me because again, Nick Sirianni's an offensively, his background is in offense. He's the head coach. How much of the offense is he going to control? Is he going to call plays? Is it going to be like a Matt Nagy situation in Chicago? Or is, or is he going to delegate more of that to, to Shane? And again, what the Colts did and Colts and Frank Reich did last year is not the same <laughs> as what the Chargers did, right? So which elements from those systems are going to win out? Obviously, when you have um, 
quarterback like the Chargers did, you can chuck it 60, 70 yards deep all the time. Uh, you know, the Colts didn't have that quarterback, and I, I would say the Eagles don't have that quarterback either. So th- it could take a while for the Eagles to kind of, to, for us to know what the Eagles really are uh, just based on sort of the, the shakeout process. Not to mention it's the NFC East. I mean, we could be as sure as humanly possible about something in the NFC East, and it will be wrong. It's just the kind of division this is. True. <laughs> uh, why don't we move on to Washington here? One of the odds-on favorites to win the division. Just looking roster top to bottom, very, very strong. Um, I I will say the whole COVID thing might throw a wrench into it a little bit because I think there actually is a competitive advantage in having high vaccination rates and people that I've talked to that are involved in teams that have 85, 90 plus in in their vaccination rates. They're, they're telling me how much smoother camp is going for them compared to teams that are floating on the lower end of the spectrum. Because well, more people in meetings, it's it's easier to yeah. communicate. I I do feel like unless their vaccination rate pumps up, Washington might have some struggles that maybe people are not anticipating. No, it absolutely is a competitive advantage. And I'll give you one example, which is the most basic, right? If you're vaccinated and you test positive, with two negative tests within 24 hours, you can return to normal function, which means meetings, traveling with the team, game day roster, whatever. So that means you could be back within 48 hours, right? 72 if the tests take a little bit longer. You're back very, very quickly. Unless that positive test is like on a Saturday and you've got a game on a Sunday, you're probably not going to miss a game check if you're vaccinated. If you are not vaccinated, the NFL rules say you're in quarantine 10 days period. Doesn't matter about your negative tests. If you are unvaccinated, you test positive for COVID, you are on the shelf for 10 days. In most scenarios, not including the bye week, that's two games. Yeah. Right? Automatically, like no chance to opt out. You talked about, you know, opting out of fines earlier. Like there is no opt out. Either you are vaccinated and you can get retested and get back in the mix, or you are not vaccinated and you sit for 10 days. And it can happen multiple times a season, right? Because we know there's false positive tests. It doesn't matter. If you get one and you're not vaccinated, you're out for 10 days. That's a serious competitive disadvantage just at its face right there. And there are others, lots of others, but that that one at its most basic, you get a positive test, you're missing two games. That's a big deal because they haven't increased the roster size, right? You're You're still at a 53 with, you know, 40, whatever, dressing on game day. You you can be down a bunch of players. We've seen it all through the preseason, right? You get an injury report and then you get a COVID list for each team. And every team, every week, there's been three, four, five, six, seven guys on that COVID list, typically three or four listed for every team throughout the league. If <laughs> If those guys are unvaccinated and it's the regular season, those guys are unavailable for basically the next two game weeks. That's that's a thing. The I knew that they were because I think it was a few weeks ago they were at like sixty something percent. 
they are now at 84%, which sounds great, by the way. It's progress. But you also have to remember that's 29th in the league. It means there's 28 teams that have more guys able to attend meetings than them. 28 teams that are not going to have to deal with that 10-day window. Yeah, and I, I'd be fascinated. I don't think they're going to provide this level of detail, but that's the 90-man roster, right? Yes. Yeah, so, so it's as, it as to, of right now. Right, so that's the 90-man camp roster. So if you cut that to 53 with the quote-unquote starters, does that number go up? Are more of their starters vaccinated or are less of their starters vaccinated? Because if you cut vaccinated guys, which they will, but, you know, is if I'm an undrafted free agent, quite frankly, I'm getting vaccinated because if I miss camp, I'm not going to have a job. Well, look like, at Jake I'm Browning up in Minnesota. Like Zimmer's basically told him that dude's getting all the reps because he's vaccinated. We, we don't have any other quarterbacks. <laughs> like, yeah. And so, I mean, I'll be fascinated to see when camp cuts come, like there will be some team numbers that drop, right? Because you got to redo the percentages based on the, on the 53 man roster and, and the practice squad. Right. And there will be some teams numbers that drop because they had a higher percentage of vaccinated players cut because they were undrafted or they didn't, you know, they just didn't make it, whatever. Um, It'll be really interesting, but generally it's been encouraging to see vaccination rates go up around the league. Um, And we'll see how it plays out. But a couple of teams are going to get dinged this year absolutely because the NFL's taken the basically sort of no tolerance policy if a game is canceled because there's not enough players on one side they're not doing the push thing they're not doing the reschedule thing they're canceling the game and here's the kicker because when you start messing with game checks people pay attention nobody gets paid mm-hmm. either side yeah you're going to see you're going to see some friction you're going to see some sparks you're going to see some very upset players taking to social media and talking to their colleagues there's going to be some very stern words you take money out of an NFL player's pocket and that's a game check not a fine not preseason not a workout bonus Take game checks out of both players on your team and opposing players' pockets, you're going to hear about it. It will be an issue. I I think the point you made about percentages changing once once cutdowns happen is I never even considered that. And I think you're right. I think I think percentages will I mean, for all we know, Washington might be better than 29th among starters, I guess you could say. Could be. And we just don't know it. Mm-mm. We, we, we might have no idea. So we'll, we'll have to check back, you know, basically late August after these cuts happen and, and see where everybody's at. But as of right now, Washington is in the bottom four teams in the league in vaccination rate. And as, as good as 84% sounds, bottom four is equally bad. That, that means that there's 28 teams ahead of them right now, and I I think that there is a decent chance that that might come back to bite them in the ass. But uh, in terms of everything else going on with Washington football, I think it's all extremely positive. Uh, I think it's it's a very very good roster. Quarterback, we'll see. You know, not that Ryan Fitzpatrick is um, anything to sneeze at, but he's also very very streaky. When he's on, he's unstoppable. When he's off, there's (laughs) no amount of holy intervention in the world that's going to help you win that game because the turnovers come in bunches. But I think that at minimum, Washington's just going to be really fun and intriguing to watch because when you get this much talent together 
all on one roster, it's hard to turn the channel. It's going to be this. We've marked it uh, as soon as Fitzpatrick signed with the Washington football team. The you and I's first thought was, oh, man, Fitz to McLaurin deep, like can't wait. <laughs> Just want to see Fitz bombing at McLaurin because Terry McLaurin is is a rising. I would say he's already a star. I don't want to call him a rising star. He's a he's a star who's only going to shine brighter in a league as time goes on. He is a tremendous receiver, and he's good at the deep ball. And like you said, when Fitz lets it go, you can get yards in bunches. When he's off, you can get turnovers in bunches. But it is going to be a fascinating watch. And that their offense doesn't stop there. It's just not a one-connection show. Um, they've built it up over the last couple of years. They have you know not only intriguing role players, but possibly some other stars in the making um, who might break out this year. So it's going to be must watch tv when when washington's on the tv now the uh front office and coaching staff review we got martin mayhew in year one at general manager he's coming over after being um you know john lynch's right hand man there over in san francisco uh had heavy involvement in building that super bowl roster and a roster that for the 49ers i think we can all agree is still super bowl quality extraordinarily deep very good in the top end Mayhew was instrumental in helping with that. And I think, you know, at least early returns on the draft in Washington, I think, kind of reflect uh, how how good I think he's going to be at general manager. Uh, Ron Rivera, one of the most highly respected men in the NFL by, oh, I don't know, everybody. I, I, I've never heard a single person speak ill of Ron Rivera ever. One of the best dudes in the league. Um, I, how do I How do I phrase this? I understand why Carolina moved on because it was time and Matt rule is great, but man, I feel like Ron Rivera never, never got his due credit for what he did for the Panthers. I mean, that was a rock bottom franchise that was net negative in revenue. By the way, the only thing even keeping them afloat under previous ownership was league sharing revenue. Like, they they were not a top tier franchise to put it mildly and he turned them around and took them to a super bowl he had them on the brink of beating peyton manning in the super bowl he's a great coach and he never gets the credit that i think he deserves he's a great human being leader of men all that all those, those kind of tropes i i love ron rivera He's a great coach. Uh, you can tell he was an instant rehire, right? Yeah. As soon as he became free, it was like, nope, won't be out of work for, you know, basically a week. He's going to have an offer on the table very quickly. He did. Um, and he moved on to another franchise that was in the middle of some deep trouble, right? On the field, off the field, like Washington has had a rough go of late and Rivera brings stability. He brings respectability. Um, the ability to get people to sign with a team like that, you know, is a whole lot easier with a guy like Ron Rivera leading the show um, and might have been near impossible. Um, probably still is. There are probably some players that are still like, mm, I don't want to go there. I know what it was like before. Um, you, you're not going to be hearing that about the team while he's there. Um, so tremendous player, uh, tremendous coach. Super well-respected, brings respectability, not only to the on-field product, but I think um, 
he works really hard in in some off the field metrics as well, which uh, he's a champion of, uh, you know, diversity and coaching. Um, is one of the guys right up there with Bruce Arians that's leading the charge. Uh, they have a female coach on staff um, as a position coach. Um, not too many NFL teams. We're seeing more NFL teams with that. Um, women in the front office as well. Um, tremendous, tremendous coach. And you know, he's <laughs> of all people. He he famously battled through cancer and is immunocompromised. And he's been very open, along with Zimmer, who you mentioned, about his frustrations. Saying, "Hey." I can't defend myself. Like I'm vaccinated, but I'm immunocompromised and I, I have to work in this situation. I would like my guys to, to have some thought towards that. And, um, he's, he's been very vocal in his frustration and I think rightfully so. But, um, if you're talking about the on-field stuff, this team is again, they have a lot of talent, but he is starting to maximize that. And it's going to be, I think this is a year, and we said this about the Giants, and it's kind of becoming a theme, right? They could be really good or they could implode. I think the chances that they're really good are a lot better. They were building oh, yeah. throughout last year. Um, would it be great if they had their quarterback of the future? Yeah, it'd be great, but they've built almost all the other parts around that so they can have a really strong product on the field. Um, and if Fitzmagic is not the guy to take them forward, um, you know, he's certainly not for the long term, but, uh, you know, if it doesn't work out this season, they can go get that quarterback prospect of the future next year and, and still be on a sort of strong direction that doesn't require a reload or a rebuild. What's crazy is last year's Washington team. And I think this year's is going to be better. Last year's Washington team gave the Buccaneers a harder time than anybody in that last yep. like eight game stretch where the Bucks went on a tear and they never lost again after the bye week. Washington gave them more problems than any other team. Packers, uh, Chiefs, any of these juggernauts they were going against. It was the Washington freaking football team that had them on the ropes with Taylor Heineke at quarterback. It's they they are a damn good team, a well coached team. Uh, and also interesting, while we're still on the kind of coaching staff uh, subject here, all of the assistants under Ron Rivera, like out of all these guys, like they, they probably have more former NFL players on their coaching staff than any other team. Jack Del Rio, defensive coordinator, played in the league. Uh, Rivera was a player. Chris Harris, Randy Jordan, Jeff Scanina, Travell Wharton. They have a lot of former players on this staff which I actually think probably helps them connect to their players uh, a lot easier than, than having a whole bunch of guys that maybe weren't, you know, former pro not that like either side of the coin is inherently better than the other, but I do think that it, it helps a little bit to coach a whole bunch of NFL players. If you used to be an NFL player and you kind of understand their thought process, you understand where they're coming from. You understand the, the trials and tribulations of being an NFL player. I think the connection that this coaching staff has to their players is a unique one because they were all, at least not all, but a lot of them were in their shoes. Yeah, a higher percentage for sure. As I was putting together the coaching roster, it stuck out to me. I always, uh, former players always pop out to me, um, you know, previous weeks, Stump Mitchell and Bobby Ingram, you see them on staffs and you're like, oh, I remember when they played, or at least I do. Um and there's a few, right? They're sprinkled in between. And to your point, I don't think you have to 
be a former NFL player to be a good coach. I think good coaches come from, you know, <laughs> good coaches come from everywhere and not a lot of people in general, just in number, get to be NFL players. So there's good coaches. It's not a prerequisite. But this staff in particular, as I went through like every line as you're going through, I was like, oh, and that guy and that guy and that guy and that guy. And that guy, like there are more former players dotting the staff than I think any other staff in the league. Um, and yeah, it absolutely helps them be quote unquote players, coaches, or understanding what it takes to be a good player in this league. Um, and just all types, right? Some, some staffs it's like, Oh, we just, you know, it's a wide receiver or it's defensive back. Like they have the full spectrum of former players across their coaching staff. Um, fascinating staff to to look at and think about again nfl experience whether it's on the coaching side or the player side if you add up their players experience years an extremely experienced staff why don't we get into uh their draft which i mean the the first six picks are unreal like martin mayhew absolutely crushed this thing basically through the fifth round and and you could argue that their, their seventh round additions, they had a trio of seventh rounders as well, um, all at least have projectable roles. But man, rounds one through five were insane. Jamin Davis at 19th overall. There was there were some waves created, I guess, um, early on in the draft process when I said that I preferred Jamin Davis over Micah Parsons. And I had a whole bunch of people in my mentions saying, Jamin Davis is not even going to be a top 50 pick. What the fuck are you talking about? Well, how's top 20? Like the, yeah. le- the league loved Jamin Davis even more than I did. And I thought I was like the highest on him out of everybody. Like Jamin Davis going top 20. It was a shocker to some people, but not quite to me. Because when I look at a linebacker that runs 4-4, has excellent instincts, tackles well in space. I saw a faster version of Zach Cunningham, who I loved coming out of Vanderbilt. And I, I felt almost like a, a selfish sense of validation when he went at 19th because I was like, thank God I'm not insane. Jamin Davis is a really good football player. I, I will die on that hill. Uh, Sam Cosme going in round two, ultra, ultra athletic, long arm tackle. I mean, just effortless in his pass sets. Some technique stuff has to get cleaned up. Um, you know, not that dissimilar to like an Alex Leatherwood, but he's further along than, than I think Alex Leatherwood was coming out of Bama. But again, just absolutely physically gifted just to the, to the rafters. He's insanely athletic. Uh, Benjamin St. Juice, he's kind of an interesting one because the, the long speed isn't there, but the hip fluidity, the physicality, the short air quickness, he's, he, he like, he has so many traits where you look at him, you're like, that's a great boundary corner. And then he has to try to stay hip to hip with somebody that is able to get a good release on him on like a nine route down the boundary. And you're like, okay, maybe, maybe not. But I think everything other than long speed he's got. And so I think there is a lot to work with there. Uh, Diami Brown. I mean, deep ball, deep ball, deep ball. Between him and Terry and Curtis Samuel, if this team isn't taking like five shots a game at 20 plus yards down the field, they're doing it wrong because they have unbelievable amounts of deep threats here. John Bates, uh, tight end at a Boise State. I was not 
high on him as a fourth rounder. I thought he was more of like a mid to late day three kind of guy. He was like the one hiccup in the first six picks where I was kind of like, eh, I don't know about that one. But Derek Forrest, one pick later in the fifth round out of Cincinnati, again, incredible size and hit fluidity and long speed at safety. His RAS score was off the charts. He and his other Cincinnati teammate were two of the, the most athletic safeties in this entire class. And he, I think, has a very easily projectable role as, again, kind of like that, um, you know, tall, lanky, free safety that just has range and range and range. And he's, his one job is to take away the seams. That's it. That's his one job. And I think he's going to be really good at it. Uh, after Derek Forrest, we got Cameron Cheeseman, the long snapper out of Michigan, who he's a long snapper. I didn't watch him. Full disclosure. But uh, man, what a name. All name team immediately. And then a trio of seventh rounders in William Bradley King, Shaka Tony, and Dax Milne. Uh, Milne was fun to watch at BYU in terms of just being able to stretch the field and then catch all these crazy deep balls over his shoulder from Zach Wilson. That was kind of like the thing that stuck out to me as I was like, man, he he's he's only good at one thing, but he's really good at it. It's like, it's one of that old, uh, you know, it's okay if you're a one-trick pony as long as your trick is really good. Well, his trick is pretty damn good. So I, I think he might actually have a future in this league as well. And for an offense that seems to be building around the vertical passing game, he sure fits. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot to like in this draft. There's a wide range of talent. Um, they definitely went with, strong athletic profiles in the first two picks uh both of those guys jamin davis you were higher on than i was um you were sort of selfishly validated and i absolutely know that feeling and i was <laughs> like huh i need because i went back to the tape because his hype was really starting to build and everybody was saying things you included like he's better than this guy he's better than this guy he's he's gonna go top you know it's going to go in the first round for sure. And I was like, I'm not so sure. I went back to the tape and you see the athleticism, but I didn't see the instincts like you did. Um, tackling absolutely was there, but for me, he was more like a second round player. We'll see how it plays out, but the, you know, RS core off the charts, both um, just overall and for his position, Sam Cosme, same thing. Incredible athlete. Yeah. He's got some Ooh, technique reps, but even so he still wins. Uh, because he is such a great athlete, good mover in space, um, will develop over time. Don't know if he starts right away. St. Juice, I love as a corner because, yeah, not a ton of deep speed, but a lot of length, and he knows how to use that to make up the difference, right? Especially as a boundary corner. Um, you know, the amount of times that a quarterback's going to get four, four and a half seconds to be able to unleash that, you know, 35 yard plus bomb not that often and can he hold you very tightly and cover you over the top with that length in the first two and a half three seconds when most plays are made yeah he's really good at it i thought he was even a bit undervalued i think they got him in the right range if they'd waited much longer they wouldn't have um diami brown yeah vertical and i i had him rated a little bit lower than other folks did because i thought he was almost exclusively that he made some other plays in that North Carolina offense, but he, he was their guy. Go deep. How's going to bomb it to you. Go deep. 
Uh, and he's good at it, right? He, it, it's, it's not just a, Hey, I was deep and he threw it to me. Like he is able to complete those catches and that is a skill set, and he has it. Um, Bates, the reason they got Bates where they got him, he was one of like eight guys in this draft that had over 500 special team snaps. Oh, uh, that'll do it. <laughs> yep. So he's, he's not a primary tight end, but he has a strong role in two phases, right? He's a good blocker. He plays with energy. Uh, he is able to get open across the middle. He is more athletic. He's one of those guys, and we see this every year with a few tight ends. It's like, oh, if they used him more, he could have done more. And that's true athletically, but ton of special team snaps out of John Bates, and, and teams loved him for that. Derek Forrest, crazy, crazy athlete. Um, I didn't see as much on tape from him as I wanted to. I really I went into his tape expecting to see a little bit more uh, coverage-wise, but the flashes are there, right? He can keep with just about anybody. He is a top-tier athlete. And again, in the middle of the fifth round, you know, he's going to have a role on special teams. That guy could play gunner, right? I don't know if he has the mentality for it, but he has every physical trait you could want for it. Um, Cheeseman, I didn't watch. Bradley King is one of those guys. So remember when Pittsburgh drafted Highsmith? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and people were like, ah, and Highsmith just played in the Hall of Fame game, right? He showed that inside spin move, and he, he's developed all through camp. The drumbeat has been Highsmith is looking like he should. He's developing, right? He's he's becoming what we hoped he might be. Um, I see a little bit of that in Bradley King. Is it the same player? No. Uh, are they starting at the same place? No. But when I watched Bradley King's tape, I was like, huh, there's some tools there, right? Is Should he go high? No. Should he be your starting edge? No. Is he a guy that if you've got a staff that understands how to get those things out of him in a year or two or three, he might be that rotational guy that's showing some flash. I think he's got those kind of tools. And look, the Washington defensive line, he doesn't have to start anytime soon, right? They are loaded. We talked about that. And I think he's in a good spot to develop. So I like that pick way down in the seventh. Shaka Tony. Kind of the other thing. There was all this buzz preseason about Shaka Tony. I watched him, reached out to another analyst after I watched like two games, and I was like, is it just me or do you think Shaka Tony's going to struggle terribly in the NFL? And he was like, nope, you're not wrong. Yeah. Like he, you know, good college player, not so sure he's going to be a great pro player. Um, I was like, okay, because I thought I was nuts because it was Shaka Tony, Shaka Tony, Shaka Tony. I got to his tape and I was like, ooh, that's those are not translatable well, skills. What was funny with Tony is you're watching Tony and then you're like, eh, I don't know about this. Who the fuck's this Oway kid? <laughs> <laughs> that's the NFL kid right there because the NFL loves traits, right? And that traits, traits, traits on the OA side. We talked about him in the last episode. But uh, yeah, Tony... I, Seventh rounder, sure, take a flyer. Uh, but I I don't know that at his position he has the traits to succeed. Um, Dax Milne, I really like Dax Milne. He was one of those guys as you were studying Zach Wilson that you were like, all right. And I didn't just see him as a deep threat. He made catches all over the field. He's crafty. He's he's crafty as a wide receiver. He's not toolsy particularly right it's not super tall doesn't have super long arms doesn't jump super high he's quick he's not overly fast he's fast-ish but you know the nfl gets faster and faster every year I, I don't think any of those other tools would put him out there he's got a good set of hands he's tough and he gets 
open, right? He was on the end of a lot of Wilson's passes. And he's just one of those guys that sort of knows how to get it done, right? What's the what's the position title? Wide receiver, right? He ends <laughs> up with a lot of catches. So is he going to overwhelm anybody physically? No. Is he still going to be crafty? Does he need to be a top receiver, top one, two, or three for this team? He doesn't. He's really fighting for that fourth, fifth wide receiver spot. Might end up on the practice squad, you know, come in late if there's some injuries in the season, come up, be elevated for a couple of games. But he's a guy that make, I could see him making two, three, four catches a game. He's he's just, he understands how to play wide receiver and he does it pretty well. So I was I was excited to see him end up there. In terms of uh, undrafted rookie additions, I'm sure they signed more than three guys. But the the only three that I mean, we scoured the internet here. The only three that we can find evidence that they signed are Nick Ugamos, a tight end, uh, Justice Reed, an edge rusher and uh, bootleg favorite Jarrett Patterson at running back who. Let's see the depth chart right now. Antonio Gibson, obviously, he's the starter. J.D. McKissick, great passing down back. Uh, Peyton Barber, Lamar Miller, Jonathan Williams. I'm assuming Jarrett Patterson's going to make the roster with those three other guys ahead of him. Because if they're going to carry four running backs, which I I think is realistic, he's got to beat out one of Barber, Miller, and Jonathan Williams, right? Like, that's just accepted. Yeah, I think Barber and Miller uh, would be the guys that probably get beat out by Patterson. I was a huge fan of Patterson. We already talked about him earlier when we were talking about his tackle. Uh, who ended up on another team in this division. But Patterson is just a tremendously skilled football player. He happens to play running back, but he maximizes his carries. Um, I don't think he's going to displace McKissick for running back two. They really like him in Washington. He's making plays in the preseason. You mentioned his uh, viability in the passing game. Um, Obviously, he's not going to take the top spot. Uh, as long as there's no injury, but I could see him being, uh, you know, a three or a four on this team and, and Washington being really happy about that because Patterson is one of those guys. Like I like Jonathan Williams too. Uh, he's bounced around a little bit. I liked him in Arkansas. I thought he had a chance in Buffalo. He, he could end up showing out and being the RB three just as easily. Um, but again, Patterson could end up on the practice squad because probably not anybody's going to poach him and, and sign him to the active roster. But man, he was a guy that there's a handful of guys every year, 10, 15 guys every year that you get into their tape and you're like, yeah, I heard he's pretty good. And you just, you watch, you watch, you watch, you go to another game and you watch and when you're like, man, look at the, I, you know, I had a full page of notes for Jared Patterson after two and a half games, like single space, full page of notes. And I was like, man, he's got, he's got it all. And scarily enough, the guy that, buffalo has behind him who's draftable this year the note i made about him is might be better (laughs) than patterson so we'll see their coach their coach left uh their coach of buffalo is now the coach at uh kansas 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 state uh kansas kansas state that's one of the two um but that'll be a fun offense to watch. Uh, and it'll be interesting to see how how Buffalo perseveres uh, with their new staff. But um, Jarrett Patterson, a little bit undersized uh, NFL-wise. He's on the short side, he's about 5'9", uh, low 200s. But just a really skilled football player who happens to play running back and makes the most out of every carry. So 
I could see him having a long career in the league as we talked about Alfred Morris earlier, right? In this episode, who's now going on year, I think 10, like you said, um, I could see Jared Patterson kicking around the league for five or six years. And, and as an undrafted free agent, that's an accomplishment because the average NFL career is about three years. So um, he's got the skill to do it if he gets a break and it's all going to be about opportunity for him. Um, you know, running backs, tough position injuries happen all the time. Um, if he don't be surprised at all, if, if he gets a little bit of spotlight, uh, even if it's just in mop up duty or, or preseason that he, he tears them off. I would be completely unsurprised by that. He is an excellent football player. I looked it up and it is Kansas Lance Leipold. There you go. Yeah. So, uh, Kansas city, Kansas state, uh, his coach has been there. God struggling to remember the name. Uh, Kleiman coach Kleiman has been there for like three years now. Uh, yeah. kind of a changing of the guard at KSU in Kansas, so to speak, because they had two legends, uh, that they're both replacing, uh, in terms of veteran free agents, they brought in, you know, the two headliners, uh, Ryan Fitzpatrick on a one year, $10 million deal, which again, if, if Ryan Fitzpatrick is playing the way that we know that Ryan Fitzpatrick is capable of playing $10 million, absolute bargain. You got guys like, you know, Josh Allen making 43 million per year now. And is Ryan Fitzpatrick 25% of the quarterback that Josh Allen is? Uh, I would I would say no. He's probably a little bit better than that. He's obviously not Josh Allen, but he's not 25% of Josh Allen. So I'd say in terms of dollars spent to production, that's a pretty good deal. Uh, and then Curtis Samuel uh, for a three-year deal at about uh, $12 million per, like $11, 12000000 million per. Very, very good value. He's one of those guys where... You know, he was like Debo before Debo, where you put him in the backfield, you give him carries, he's great on screens, he's great on special teams, underrated route runner, fearless over the middle, just a very good, solid, all-around football player. You know what I think is fascinating about this particular one? Huh? Where'd he come from? Ohio State. Nope. Oh, he's professionally. About- oh, Panthers. Yeah, Ron Rivera. Knows him. Knows him? Didn't get that out of him, right? We didn't see that Curtis Samuel until Matt Rule came along, right? We saw some flashes, but when Matt Rule came along, he's like, I know what to do with you. (laughs) I was just in college. We have a ton of guys like you. And we saw Curtis Samuel really blossom, right? In his first year under Matt Rule. And so I find it fascinating that he ends back up in Washington under Ron Rivera, who had him and apparently liked him. You know, I would assume he had some input on that signing, especially with the money attached to it, but never leveraged that production on him. It was always like a hint of or, a, you know, potential production. And then Rule got there and really said, oh, no, we're going we're to use you fully in, in both ways. And we saw Curtis Samuel sort of ascend last year. So that I found fascinating. But, you know, you uh, know who else in, knows him, though? Mm, Scott Turner. Yes. Who was the quarterback's coach in Carolina when his dad, Norv Turner, was the OC under Ron Rivera. So both of them know Curtis Samuel, and both of them saw the things that he could do to their DBs in practice. And I think they saw it play out in real live game action last year, and were like, shit, we knew it. We knew he could do that. (laughs) (laughs) We never never unlocked that. So it would be fascinating to see if they can continue his, his ascension that he started last year. Um... And did you talk about William Jackson yet? Uh, no, I forgot they brought him in too. Three yeah, years, Jackson 40 was million. The, Jackson was the 
big grab, right? Yeah. So again, if you're getting a top tier boundary corner, you're paying for them, especially in free agency, maybe overpaying. And if you're giving anybody $40 million, I agree that's not top tier corner money, but in this year, in a down cap year with limited cap resources, you're throwing 40 million bucks at somebody. Um, I realize he could make less over the life of the deal. Yes, I get it. But that was a huge signing for them. And Jackson has been very good at stretches throughout his career. That secondary is is low-key really good. They had some players step up from sort of uh, lower expectation last year and and really start to round it out. The addition of Jackson, if he plays up to his potential, is going to make that a scary coverage unit. They already have a very scary defensive line unit. You could see this defense. That could be a kind of cornerstone piece. Well, not kind of cornerstone. That could be a cornerstone piece if he plays as well as he has in the past. And again, that's been up and down. So you're hoping you get prime William Jackson. Um, that's a that's a big one. And the one that just hurts my heart a lot because I, I alluded to Chicago's offensive line issues is Charles Leno, right? Charles mm -hmm. Leno, I really thought was going to stay, really thought Tevin Jenkins was going to start at right tackle, which was the position he played in college. And they were going to go through one more year with Leno at left tackle, who was a very good value even under his contract in Chicago. They cut him loose. They say, we're tearing the Band-Aid off. We're moving Tevin to left. Tevin Jenkins hasn't practiced yet with back tightness. And man, do they wish they had a guy like Charles Leno on their <laughs> roster. Uh, Washington moves on from Moses and you know they pick up a very experienced player you can you can talk about it being a drop off or whatever else but man does Chicago wish they have Charles Leno in the fold right now and they're they're paying him one year four million to get a tackle with that many starts in a row it's been super durable as well you know, he's a mid-tier NFL tackle. Nobody's going to mistake him for a top 10 tackle, but nobody's going to mistake him for a bottom 10 tackle either. And we've seen the effect that those can have on your team, your quarterback, your offensive production. So huge sort of solidifying move for really cheap. One year, $4 million to pick up Charles Leno. is a great deal for the Washington football team. One of the uh, the most underrated signings, not just that Washington made, but that any team made, Bobby McCain, free safety mm. from Miami that came over on a one year. They're paying him a million and a half dollars. And Bobby McCain was a really good player for the Dolphins last year. You go back to that Dolphins-Chiefs game, when Tyreek was ripping off those big plays, I mean, the Dolphins, you know, they, they had him on the ropes. They were really putting it to the Chiefs, and all of a sudden Tyreek gets two huge plays. Those two plays happened like on the two snaps that Bobby McCain left the game. Like th that was like, they, they brought in a backup safety and all of a sudden they're like, all right, Tyreek deep post. And like, that was it. Like the chiefs do not win that game. Bobby McCain doesn't go off with a couple, you know, temporary injuries. He's a really good player. And it, they just brought him like, they don't even need him. You know, they got Cameron curl. Um, they got Landon Collins. They just drafted Derek yeah. Forrest. They don't really need him, but if you're, third safety is Bobby McCain, who honestly will probably get a lot of snaps because Landon Collins is, is not a true free safety and Cameron curl. He's, he's better in the deep middle, but I would still rather have Bobby McCain there and then have both curl and Landon playing kind of closer to the line of scrimmage in like a three safety package, a million and a half for that. That's a great deal. 
This is what good GMs do, though. We were just talking about it with Chicago's struggles, right? Their GM decides, hey, I had some offensive line struggles. It looks like he addresses them, and then he cuts a veteran to to get the cap off the books. And now in camp, like, literally, they're dressing five guys for camp. It's crazy. They have nine guys that they could. You, you do this. When the opportunity presents itself doesn't matter so much about need because need is based on if all my starters stay healthy and everything goes as planned. And that never happens in the NFL. So if Bobby McCain's out there and you can get him in a low cap year for a one-year deal because everybody's looking for a one-year deal because the money's coming back into play next year, you say, ah, we don't, you know, you sit around the table and you say, ah, we don't need him. Well, right now, <laughs> we don't need him. Do we need him in the middle of December if Landon Collins goes down with turf toe or something? Yeah, we absolutely will. And they do. They stack assets. And then if you get in before the trade deadline, somebody else that's a contender takes an injury, doesn't have a ton of money. You're like, hey, we'll give you Bobby McCain for a fifth rounder. Right. Is Bobby McCain straight up worth a fifth rounder? No. If you leverage it the right way and you have a surplus and the other team doesn't, do you get a fifth rounder for him that again, you can package? This is what good GMs do. They take advantage of what the market brings to them. And that's a perfect example of McCain. Not a high profile signing. Didn't really need him. Get him for a great value. If he turns out to be extraneous, try and move him for a pick. If not, he gives you tremendous depth for the year. You know, I take exception to what you just said. Because I'm sorry, nice. if Mo Sanu can get moved for a second round pick, oh, oh, Bobby McCain could go for more than yeah, fifth. take the outlier, go for it. <laughs> oh man, take one of the worst deals in NFL history. That's got to okay. be up there, right? It's I've heard it discussed, right? I don't think it is. If you really go back and and look, it's 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 in the hall of not very good. <laughs> what what player became of that pick? Who did Atlanta get for that second rounder? I can't remember because I mean I have no idea. Good, Lord. I mean like straight up no idea. But it was it was a terrible choice at the time. Uh, <laughs> I mean it was I, a terrible choice. I remember even people uh, thinking at the time they were like, "Whoa, Bill, come on now!" Oh yeah, like <laughs> you know. And it's one of those things where they announce like that he got moved for a pick and it doesn't come out immediately. And people are like, "Oh, you know, fifth rounder, maybe fourth if it was bad." <laughs> it's like second, and everybody's like, "You're kidding, right?" <laughs> They're like, no, it's a second. And you're like, are you sure? <laughs> Is that a typo? Right? No, it's a second rounder for most of new. And you're like, huh? Yeah. <laughs> That's like, all you got. All right. Is, huh? It's like, you're still okay. winning Super Bowls, but come yeah, on, guys. That one was not. Come wise. on, guys. Not wise. Uh, why don't we move on to our last NFC East team? Perennially, uh, the most interesting to talk about. And not always for good reasons, but uh, the Dallas Cowboys once again are I'm just gonna, the talk of the league. I'm just, just going to anger Cowboys fans. Why is that? I'm going to say perennially most overrated teams in the league. Well, I don't know about that because I think, you know, the, the whole eight and eight thing was such a meme. I don't think people like maybe some Cowboys fans would, would you know, the Skip Baylesses of the world would get on TV and say, we're going to win the Super Bowl. But I think 90% of football fans for a very long time, particularly in the Jason Garrett era, would look at them every year and be like, yeah, eight and eight, nine, seven. And for the most part, uh, they were right. <laughs> no, nah, and I don't disagree that, that 
folks that pay attention to the league uh, understand what the Cowboys have been for a very long time. But if you look at the amount of talk about the Cowboys, the amount of exposure, and this is a, a huge credit to a guy we're going to talk about in just a minute. Um, you know, Jerry Jones is a masterful marketer and he has kept them in the forefront of the conversation well above the level of their actual performance for a long time. And when I say overrated, that's what I mean. The amount of sort of talk and shine they get for what they actually do and have done for a very long period of time is those two things are not equal. And, and that's where I think the overrated comes from. The, the ability for the Cowboys to be just good enough where the following August, you're like, yeah, but this is the year. <laughs> Cause they're never bad. Yeah. They're never bad. Ever. No, no, this is not a team that bounces off the bottom. And I, it, for Cowboys fans out there, you know, I don't, just like the Cowboys. I, I I think the Cowboys are entertaining. They've been very talented, right? There's been a lot of talent on that roster. They've been interesting. Like you said, they're not that team that you just write off after like October. You're like, I'm not watching their games anymore. They're, you know, but they, at the same time, it is so solidly locked in the middle. And, and I think it is, I think that's the narrative every year. If, if it goes right for the Cowboys this year, you know, contenders and they haven't been contenders in a long time. The only Cowboys game that I can remember in the last, God, okay. So I started working at NFL Network in the 2012 season. So we're year 10. I'm going on basically 10 straight years of watching virtually every single NFL game every single week. Uh, the only Cowboys game in that span that I can ever remember actively not enjoying watching was this, <laughs> and Cowboys fans know this game too. It was this horrific, game against the Eagles where even like Joe Buck who it was like America's game of the week against the Eagles it was an afternoon game I was in the red zone control room at the time and like there there was only like three games going on that afternoon because in the afternoon window of red zone like you you gotta hope that it's good games because you can't just cut away to six other games and it was so fucking awful it was some of the worst football I've ever seen <laughs> in my life where G even Joe Buck was like apologizing to the audience for how bad this football game was. And like, we yeah. are, we are like two games were at halftime and this game was the only one on. And we, we were toe tapping in that control room, trying to get the audience through this monstrosity of a football game. And this was like 2016, maybe 20, 20, I think it was the 2016 season. And like, I, that was the only time in 10 years that I actively didn't enjoy watching a Cowboys game which is saying a lot because that means there's hundreds of other games where regardless of if they're good or if they're not good, they're at least always entertaining. And I think I will credit the Cowboys with that is regardless of what the state of their organization is, they're virtually never boring. Yeah, I would say they'd never border on unwatchable and, and Cowboys fans may rise up and say, <laughs> that's not true, you know. Our team can be unwatchable. It, it might be. Um, but there's, again, they've had a really solid level of talent for a long time. They had, they had a tremendous offensive line assembled a little while back, three, four years ago. They had that all-world offensive line. Dax played very well, very well. I, I'm a Dak stan. Dak supporter have been since he was drafted. Um, and he's ascended even past where I thought 
uh, he would at this point of his career. He's been very, very good, underrated, I think. Um, they love offensive flash. That makes them interesting, right? We're going we're gonna to talk about how their roster is comprised. It, it is not a boring roster. It is not a hard-to-watch roster. Um, if anything, if Cowboys fans did say it was hard to watch, it's again because they have expectations up here and and Dallas comes in right here. And that, you know, I'm thinking of the Scooter Magruders of the world who are perennially frustrated by that performance. Well, with all that being said, EJ, this is the year it's going to happen. <laughs> Oh, Christ. Um, yeah, no, it's a very talented team. And again, they're never boring. They're fun to watch, especially when Dak's healthy and, you know, you got arguably the best receiving core in the league, quote unquote, when they're healthy. Like they they throw the ball over, all over the yard. They put up a shitload of points. The defense should be better this year just by virtue of the fact that you've got Dan Quinn coming in uh, at defensive coordinator instead of Nolan last year who... I mean, even Cowboys players are telling you pretty much out in the open, like, we didn't like Nolan very much. We love Dan Quinn. We, we were buying in. Yeah. And, like, that's such a big, crucial factor is just having players buy into the system and want to play for a coach. They clearly want to play for Dan Quinn. So massive upgrade on that front. Um, Kellen Moore, I think, brings a lot of good consistency at offensive coordinator, you know, He's young, he's innovative, he has a great relationship with Dak. Again, buying in, it's a key theme here. Uh, Mike McCarthy in year two. I I kind of hope that this new approach for McCarthy of kind of taking a step back and being more of like a CEO type coach than a play caller type coach, I think that will work out better for him. Uh, mm. I don't know. And then Rob Davis at, at I, assistant head coach. So overall, like, I like the staff. I I think the staff is good and i think you hit on the key distinction in the staff hmm. mike mccarthy has to let kellen moore be kellen moore because kellen moore is not without his warts but he is i'm just gonna say it light years ahead of mike mccarthy in offensive design mike mccarthy wasted a good number of years of aaron Rodgers' career in green bay calling antiquated pass concepts and if he, for some reason, decided to revert to insert himself in the offensive play calling of the Cowboys, it would be a tremendous step back. Again, is Kellen Moore a world beater? No. Is he a good offensive coordinator? Yes. And does he understand what he has in Dak? He does. So let's hope McCarthy stays in that CEO sort of overseeing role with I would say limited input, some input, obviously he's the head coach, um, but let Callan Moore uh, be Callan Moore and develop as he will and sort of succeed or fail on his own merits. Don't, don't be overriding him in key situations. The Dan Quinn thing, I'm really interested because the defense, I would say wildly underachieved for the last couple of seasons and um, is more talented than that, right? They've invested a lot on the defensive end. Uh, they did it again this year. I want to see, I want to see those assets maximized. I want to see, uh, just like Cowboys fans, a, a sort of uh, a defense that's more effective overall, end to end. And I hope we do. Um, and that remains to be seen. But I think there's more hope of that happening this year. I, I don't think the Cowboys went into last year with a lot of hope with Nolan calling the defense that it was going to be that it was going to be awesome. 
Yeah, I just I, the culture around the Cowboys this year seems so much better, looser. Guys seem excited to said, play. This is the year. This is the year. <laughs> this is the year. Fuck you, overrated. This is it. It's happening. Super Bowl, baby. Uh, oh, boy. <laughs> Here we go. What have I done? Oh, God. Hello to the comment section. Why don't we go over their mm-hmm. draft? Um, again, talented, talented, talented draft. The Cowboys are one of those teams where they're like, eh, give us athletes. We'll figure out the rest. Which, I, you know, given their coaching staff, I think they actually have a pretty good coaching staff. They could probably get a lot out of these guys. Micah Parsons at 12th overall. And, you know, my thing with Micah Parsons, you know, I talked about Jamin Davis earlier, how I had Jamin Davis ahead of Micah Parsons. I had Zayvon Collins ahead of Micah Parsons. I had, uh, for certain systems, Jeremiah Wusu-Koromoa ahead of Micah Parsons. That was not me not liking Micah Parsons as a prospect. It's more so acknowledging the fact that he was brand new to linebacker at Penn State. He was an edge rusher in high school. He's a five-star edge rusher in high school converted to linebacker because they just wanted to get him on the field. They already had Yitro Gross Matos. They had Oa. They had Shaka Tony. They had a whole bunch of edge talent. They didn't need him at edge. Um, and so they put him at linebacker and he was learning on the job. And I felt like he wasn't all the way there yet in terms of, you know, learning, um, you know, how to process things out of certain fronts, like in terms of learning Okay, in the back of his head, you can't actively thinking if you're playing like a four down front and you're doing like a lever, spill lever, and you have to kind of overlap and get to the edge and, you know, kind of get over the top of that guard and get to the edge and be the guy that has to make the tackle in space without thinking. Like that is your job. That was the kind of stuff that comes naturally to linebackers that have played linebacker for a long time that I just felt like he needed more time to develop that kind of instinct. The athletic talent, phenomenal. It's just learning the position, you know, learning uh, zone drops, learning man coverage techniques, all that stuff. Like Jamin Davis already had it. Zayvon Collins, to a lesser degree, but, or I should say a different degree because they played more like tight front there. It's different kind of run fits. He already had it. Uh, and then Jeremiah Wusukoromoa obviously already had it. So it's just they were further along in development of the position than Micah Parsons. But I do acknowledge he's still at least a freak athlete. And if nothing else, he'll make plays just because of that. It's such a Cowboys pick too. Like the certain franchises love certain types of players. And in recent history, the Cowboys love athletic middle linebackers. (laughs) Yes, they do. Every couple of years. Right. And, and it was a, bigger gap here because they were kind of waiting on Leighton Van Der Esch and seeing what they had there. But every couple of years, they drop a high pick, right? And, you know, it was Jalen Smith, second round, 2016. Two years later, 2018, round one, Leighton Van Der Esch. We went two years without one, and now round one, Micah Parsons, right? The, the Cowboys still place value on this position where a lot of other teams... Uh, finding a round one, you know, middle linebacker, not outside edge rushing linebacker necessarily. You either don't find one or you find one every five or six years, right? But the Cowboys with with regularity in recent history have been, will invest highly in this particular position. So it's not out of character. Um, I would, I'd, I'm really interested to see what Dan Quinn can do 
with Micah Parsons because he has room to grow. That's oh, the yeah. kind of scary thing about Micah Parsons is he's immensely talented. He already makes plays with that, and he is not at his ceiling, right? Athletically, he's not one of those guys that's going to take a huge jump with pro conditioning. He's already a really good athlete, right? But with pro coaching, mm, he's going to get closer. Like, he he still has room to become a much better football player, and that's exciting. And I think from from Quinn's perspective, he's like, when I was in Seattle, we had a young Bobby Wagner, mm-hmm. one of the best linebackers of his generation. And I, I don't really think that's even an arguable point. He's going to be a Hall of Famer. Goes to Atlanta, you know, first year drafting Deion Jones. Now, they Deion Jones was a later pick than Micah Parsons, but I think also the game has changed where now linebackers in Deion Jones's mold are people put higher priority on them, but it was the same kind of thing where it's like, all right, I got, I got my middle linebacker. I'm going to build my defense around him. And I think Dan Quinn knows that it's, you don't realize how important linebacker is until you don't have good ones. And I think that he actively felt like Jalen Smith and Leighton Vander Esch for whatever reason, you know, Jalen Smith, again, another guy who's great athlete, but he just hasn't quite lived up to, what he was at Notre Dame. Like he was a great linebacker at Notre Dame, never quite achieved that level in the NFL. Leighton Vander Esch injuries, you know, kind of taken their toll on him. And I think he just felt like, look, this defense is not going to work unless we have a star linebacker. And he just didn't believe that either one of those guys was going to be his star linebacker in the future. Like he wants another Sean Lee, you know, another kind of glass cannon of a linebacker. But Sean Lee, when, when Sean Lee was right, whoo, man, he was good. And Dan Quinn won another one of those. Um, Kelvin Joseph, really loved the Kelvin Joseph pick. Uh, I, again, another exceptional athlete. Uh, boundary corner, physical impress, great ball skills. I'm trying to remember like who he reminds me of stylistically. Because he's, you expect people that play his play style, like, hey, I'm a press bail corner to be like these super long, lanky kind of guys. But he's, he's more on the shorter side. But he's so physical and he's got such good ball tracking ability that he kind of plays like that Richard Sherman-ish type play style. Again, totally different physical build, totally different athletic skills. But in terms of like role, again, Dan Quinn was around a young Richard Sherman in Seattle. He's he's going to play that same kind of style of like, I'm either going to be up jamming you or bailing, getting back into that deep third and going to get the ball. Uh, Oso Digizua is going to be more of like a three technique for them, like an attacking penetrating three technique who can also play a little bit of base end. he can kind of do both, but I imagine he'll be more successful inside a three technique. Uh, Chauncey Golston defensive end out of Iowa. Again, another one of those guys where in their hybrid front, they'll move them all over the place and kind of do a little bit of everything for them. Uh, Nashawn Wright. I mean, Length, 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 length. <laughs> that is that is what he's got. He's got, he's just huge, extremely long arms, really stiff, but for a boundary corner whose one job is just go beat up receivers on the outside and force them out of bounds, he can absolutely do that. Uh, had some really nice reps so far in camp too, like some kind of training camp videos floating around. He said, he said some really good uh, press coverage reps. Jabril Cox uh, in the fourth round. Oh my God. Like get, getting that kind of linebacker that late? What? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I something is 
got to be up with that. But you mentioned Deion Jones earlier, right? And uh, Jabril Cox, uh, North Dakota State, transferred to LSU. Tremendous player versus the pass. He's not just a pass coverage linebacker, but that is the strength of his game, strength of linebackers in the modern NFL. And because Dan Quinn's there, has experience with a player like Deion Jones, my my stock, my hope for Jabril Cox is through the roof because super talented player and a great value there. And he's, um, in particular, when I look at this system, where it's like we are going to play a lot of like match cover three and stuff like that, he's going to be what's called the three up is three player. Which means if there's like a three by one set on offense, which a lot of the league is doing a shitload these days, because that's kind of overloading one side. And then you have like an ISO on the backside. And then you you just try to like scheme up zone busters on the front side. If you have a, a three up is three player, and this was Bobby Wagner's role in Seattle for the longest time when Dan Quinn was there, still is, to be honest, um, whose number one job is to carry the number three receiver up the backside seam so that the free safety doesn't have to worry about it. And the free safety can just kind of float over the top of one and two and go hunt the ball, like what Earl Thomas was doing in Seattle. Uh, that is a tremendous advantage for the defense because typically the number three receiver, the inside slot receiver on offense is going to be your biggest matchup weapon because most of the time they're going to be matched up with a linebacker. But if you have a linebacker that can cover well on a wide receiver, like what Jabril Cox did at LSU because they used him in that same capacity as a three up his three player, let the safeties just go hunt elsewhere. And he held up very well. Again, that kind of takes away the biggest matchup advantage on an offense. And then you have three over two on the other receivers, so they're not going to get open. And then on the backside, you've got either Kelvin Joseph or Nashawn Ryder, whoever, as your ISO corner. And as long as he wins that one-on-one, there's nowhere to throw the ball. And all of a sudden, your front four can get after it and get a whole bunch of sacks. And that's, that's what the Legion of Boom was built around, was we have Bobby Wagner taking away number three. We have Earl Thomas taking away number one and two, along with Richard Sherman. And then we had, you know, well, they had a rotating cast of corners on the backside. As long as Bobby held up and as long as the backside corner held up, all of a sudden you got Michael Bennett getting sacks. All of a sudden you got Cliff Averill getting sacks and there's nowhere to throw the ball. That is what this defense is going to be built around is Jabril Cox being the three up as three player, these corners winning isolated backside matchups and the front four getting a metric ton of sacks. Yep, that's their hope for sure. <laughs> and I, you know, I, I would be remiss if I didn't thank Dallas for this draft at some point because if Dallas doesn't get pipped for their corner, right? It's cool that they got Calvin Joseph, but if they don't get pipped for their corner and say, eh, you know, and go hunting, Justin Fields doesn't end up in Chicago. You're not wrong. So, yeah. Thanks, Dallas. Appreciate that. It's cool. <laughs> um, moving on with the draft in the fourth round. They also get Josh Ball out of Marshall. Great developmental tackle prospect. Um, our buddy Brandon Thorne was like late in the process. Like, Josh Ball, he's a guy you want. Like, he's a guy you want in your rotation. Might make your three. If not, he's your practice squad guy. Like, he's a guy that could grow into it. Has already had some good reps. Um, yeah, good get for them. Simi Fajoko massive receiver out of Stanford who 
uh, is going to have trouble breaking into this rotation. I'm not sure he makes the active roster because of it, not because he's not a good player. He is a good player. He does bring something a little bit different, but Dallas is deep at wide receiver. So I could see him being a practice squatter, even though uh, this is at the end of the fifth round. Um, Quentin Bohanna, big defensive tackle out of Kentucky. One of my favorites, Israel Mukuamu, South Carolina, and they have him listed at corner. That's the difference. He was listed at corner in 2019. That's when he caught my eye. I was like, who is this 6'3 guy playing corner for the Gamecocks and just crushing people again? Very physical, long arms, plays press. Last year, they had to force him into the safety role. They had some injuries. He's not a safety. <laughs> He's just not a safety. He looked, he had a down year in 2020. And the only good reps that I saw on tape from him in 2020 were when they were like, hey, go get the slot guy, right? And they pressed him. And he was like, I can do this. <laughs> he goes up and just smothers a guy in press because he's so long, so tall, super physical. It's like, that's what he should be doing. So if they play him at a stand-up press corner role, I again, Dan Quinn understands long physical press corners. Mukuamu stock up for that guy, again, because of the match of the system and the coordinator. And then Matt Farnock, the guard out of Nebraska, I did not watch, um, didn't get that deep into my guards. Um, so don't know about him. But overall, a really good class, a lot of uh, what I would call fit matches with system. Golston's the same way, right? You mentioned all the guys on Seattle's defensive line that Quinn was able to use. Golston has some cool traits that I think Quinn can use. If he'd gone to a different system, say he'd even gone to the Giants, right? We talked about the Giants at the top of this podcast and getting speed guys to the outside to get Golston. Like, I'd be less excited about Golston if he'd gone to the Giants than if he goes and he's one of Quinn's rotations off the end in that defense because he has skills to hold up one of Quinn's end positions. Not the other one, right? Not the yeah. Averill role. Golson can do that, right? Well, you know That's, who, um, not to not to hammer the theme too much, you know who Israel Mukuamu is? He's Brandon Browner. Yeah, same same dude. Yeah, and again, when you play him at corner, that comes out. You play him at safety, he he's not a safety. Well, he I, just and some people think that's interchangeable, and it really wasn't for him. But yeah, yeah. I think Browner is a tremendous comparison. You know, because he has limitations, but again, the traits that he has are the ones that Quinn wants him to use, and that's the that's that perfect match. And, and in that system that I talked about, where it's like you know, you're going to have one corner isolated on the backside and press. That's literally all Brandon Browner did was it's oh. like Richard Sherman's playing his deep third zone, Earl's over the top of him, getting a whole bunch of interceptions. Bobby's taking number three and Brandon Browner, his one job is to just beat the shit out of whatever unfortunate five eleven receiver is back there. And he did it. He did a good job. That's yeah. My favorite low key nickname for Brandon Browner ever. What's that? Billy, Billy club Browner. <laughs> Oh God, that's a good because one. He just, yeah, because he just forearmed the snot out of people, right? And oh, it was a war. I mean, that defense in general was super fast, super physical, and loved to hit. I mean, Earl come with enough speed. Like he's one of the fastest players in the league at that time. And and if he hit you, everybody was concentrating on Cam because Cam was look, Cam was an absolute blaster. But Earl Thomas moving at that speed, right? You talk about like 
home run hitters in baseball, it's like, oh, the biggest guy? No, the guy who's bad is moving the fastest, right? Power is, if you look at the physical, if the formula for power involves speed, right? And Earl Thomas coming at that speed, he could hit you. But Browner was just, you know, limited, vertical, tall, but so physical, getting by did, him. Did you know that he's in prison? Brandon Browner? For attempted murder? When the fuck did that happen? No idea. No, I did not, obviously, by the look on my 2018. face. 2018? What? I didn't cover the NFL the for a living, and I didn't hear that Brandon Browner went to prison for attempted murder? Uh, nope. What? Okay, then. I Maybe had the, no idea. Oh, please tell me he didn't use a billy club. <laughs> uh, it's, so July 8th, 2018, not to get on a sidetrack here, Browner was arrested by Laverne police for breaking and entering into a residence of a woman with whom he once had a relationship and fleeing the scene after stealing, stealing a Rolex within the home. Two days later, he was officially charged with attempted murder and three other felonies. In December... He was sentenced to eight years in prison after pleading no contest on an attempted murder charge, and he's now serving in San Quentin. I had no idea. I remember the B&E thing, like breaking into a home, and it sounded... This is... <laughs> my memory's being stressed here, but I remember the B&E thing, and it sounded like he knew the person, so they classify that as a domestic dispute, right? It sounds like that's the case if you formerly had a relationship with that person that's all i heard like i remember I like, the ah, i remember the drug great. charges because he like a little before that he had like drug charges or something like that and i remember that but i didn't god i didn't hear about the attempted no, murder. I, I remember the b and e i didn't catch the attempted murder part that's uh yeesh no wow the more you know kids the more you know uh and on that happy note <laughs> why don't we talk about the undrafted free agent additions to the dallas cowboys because uh, they have many. And we actually highlighted this UDFA class uh, earlier this summer, because that's a good one. Uh, Jaquan Hardy, running back out of Tiffin. Brennan Eagles, wide receiver from Texas. TJ Vasher, just a monstrous human being from Texas Tech. He's like 6'6". Uh, Brandon Smith from Iowa. Honestly, they brought in a whole lot of monstrous human beings at wide receiver. Uh, Osiris Mitchell from Mississippi State. Uh, Brendan Knox from Marshall. He's a running back. A couple, uh, a trio of tight ends. Nick Ralston from Louisiana. Nick Eubanks from Michigan. And Artavius Lynn from TCU. They got Braylon Jones from Houston. Tyler Coyle from Purdue. Anthony Hines from Texas A&M. And Austin Feliu from Oregon. He's an interior defensive lineman. Who I, because I selfishly was watching a whole lot of Thibodeau. Uh, not that he's even eligible, but I just like watching Kayvon Thibodeau. And uh, Faliu actually showed up for me. And I, I had like a, you know, borderline day three-ish kind of like, oh, yeah, I'd like, let's see what, he, let's bring him in and see what he can do kind of great on him. So UDFA sounds about right. But I, I liked him. I thought he had some skills. He's, he's good. And like, he reminds me a lot of the guy that um, that the Bears drafted in the late rounds was Kyrus Tonga from BYU. Oh, I can and see that. Yeah. Yeah, and people were like, if you're going to draft Tonga, why would you not draft Philly? Because, again, on tape, they do a lot of the same things. And uh, our buddy Mark Jarvis said the same thing. Like, why is Philly not getting? I mean, I understand why you're not talking about him in the top half of the draft. But if you're looking for that stout DT that can move people and contain run lanes, 
It's not going to get you a ton of penetration. That's not really his role, but he is absolutely strong enough to control the point of attack and, and, and turn an offensive line. Why is he not getting some play in the later rounds? And, um, you know, glad to see he got picked up as the UDFA. Tyler Coyle is really interesting, super athletic. They have him listed at linebacker. He was a safety at Purdue. Um, so again, one of those sort of hybrid players. Um, and yeah, in terms of the all tower team for wide receivers, you're talking about Brennan Eagles, TJ Vasher, Brandon Smith was um, not super tall, but he's incredibly athletic. And then we talked about them drafting Simi Fahoku. So they have like three guys between their draft class and the UDFA class who are over six, three at wide receiver. Um, Eagles notably so and Vasher not short either. Just you put those guys, <laughs> they're, they're going to be in the back row of the offensive photo. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> yeah. Dak's going to have no shortage of red zone targets. I'll just yeah. say that uh, play man coverage at your peril. Uh, now let's get the uh, veteran free agency additions. They, they did retain Jordan Lewis on a three-year deal, which I felt was like crucial for them. I like mm -hmm. Jordan Lewis a lot as a player. Uh, Carlos Watkins, they brought over from Houston, kind of a, a an interesting, you know, penetrating interior rotational kind of guy. Like they, this team has an infinite amount of guys that can play three technique, it seems. Uh, Brent Urban from Chicago is coming off a really good year. Took kind of a one-year mercenary contract for less than $2 million. Phenomenal value for a guy like Brent Urban. Again, coming off a really, really nice year. Uh, Terrell Basham, they brought in from the Jets. Uh, Brian Anger, the punter, coming over from Houston. Um, let's see, uh, Malik Hooker took a less than $1 million deal to try to, you know, rehab his career, natural fit at free safety. Health has always been a concern with him. But, man, yeah. going back to his time at Ohio State, the range, the ball skills. I remember there was a there was a story where when he was an underclassman and they had a whole bunch of dudes ahead of him at Ohio State because it's Ohio State. Of course they do. And so he was, you know, basically just going against the ones in practice on defense because they would practice against the twos. And uh, they lost count at 40 for the amount of practice interceptions that he had in one year as uh, I think it was a, a true sophomore. And the, he he absolutely wrecked a very talented Ohio State offense that had like 10 dudes going to the pros over the next couple of years. He destroyed them as a sophomore. I want him to stay healthy so bad. Oh, he's so good when he's healthy, but he's just never I mean, healthy. He is like top five deep safeties in the league when he's healthy. And I don't say that lightly. Like his skill level, his range, his ability to catch one-handed, his ability to stay in coverage, unbelievable. But he just can't stay on the field. And I, you know, again, Dan Quinn is super familiar <laughs> with a deep third, very fast, high-range leverage safety, right? <laughs> He knows exactly what to do with that guy. I just want him to have him available because it'll it will bring a facet to that defense that's so needed. And you just want to see it happen, right? But the reason you get that guy for less than a million bucks is because he's been made of glass so far. He just cannot stay on the field. So yeah, big ups to Brent Urban. Brent Urban's massive value. He's going to eat a lot of downs for Dan Quinn. Dan Quinn's going to love him. I was sad to see him go. I understand why he did. 
He he made a ton of plays last year for the Bears. Um, underrated, certainly not a high-profile guy, but always always had his assignment and usually made one or two plays a week on top of that. So the kind of guy you want to add. And then DeMonte Casey, again, brings him from Atlanta. Like, I liked Casey in the draft. Dan Quinn knows exactly what he is. He brings him along, can help teach his system, uh, and then brings Keanu Neal too, right? Keanu Neal, if you're looking for like the Earl Thomas, you know. Well, it kind of uh, sounds like they want him to be linebacker. I, I understand, but I mean, Cam Cam Chancellor could have been a linebacker, right? It was before that was in vogue, right? But he absolutely could have been that dimebacker role that, that we see being more popular. And it's like Malik Hooker and Keanu Neal, like let's keep them both healthy. That that could be a ton of fun in, in Dallas's defensive backfield. And then you also got Donovan Wilson there too. Like they are not short on safeties at all. They've got at least four. And, you know, Tyler Coyle, being projected as a safety so that's five like th- that right there like it's even if you take more injuries because this is a very injury prone safety core like you're they're gonna be fine like it's a v- very very deep safety core um jeremy sprinkle they also brought in a tight end to be their te3 i guess well i don't know he'll probably get a lot of snaps because he's a better blocker than the other guys they got but you know for 1.1 million bringing in a blocking tight end and then uh, Noah Brown, they retained on a one-year deal also for about a million dollars because why not have 10 receivers? Why not? They, they, they million, don't have enough. A million there. Pretty yeah. soon you're talking about real money. So overall, man, like it's, again, this is one of those rosters where you look at it and you're like, okay, that's a strength. That's a strength. Quarterback is a strength when the quarterback is healthy. And I, I don't want to speculate too much on Dak's shoulder because – it's, it's kind of a weird injury. It's not like a normal football injury. It's more of a baseball injury. It's like under the shoulder. So they, they contacted the Texas Rangers to ask their um, training staff, like, how do you guys normally deal with this? Because it's, it's just kind of a weird injury for a quarterback to have. The word out of the Cowboys is he's going to be okay, but I'm not going to speculate on it. But, you know, when Dak's healthy, he's a great quarterback. Running back, also an elite position group for them. They're three deep there and very, very strong defensive line. They've got a whole bunch of dudes that I'm really big fans of. You know, Demarcus Lawrence is great. Neville Gallimore, huge fan. Odigizua, love him. Uh, you know, linebacker, <laughs> can't say they're short on talent there, especially with the two dudes that they just drafted. And then uh, secondary, you know, the the retaining of Jordan Lewis. Corner is, we'll see what happens with the young guys, but again, they're they're at least four deep there with with talents that we like so phenomenally talented roster and a coaching staff that I feel a lot better about this year than last year it's it's hard for me to be down on the Cowboys and I'll say it once more this is the year EJ it's gonna happen yeah I'm not down on them and and we'll find that out as we pick our best and worst at the end of the show uh not not down on the Cowboys and you know we over index on quarterback because guess what it's the most important position in sports yes you still have to have a team around them but as Dak goes so goes the Cowboys for a bit right if he's there they have every chance to win the division and win playoff games like no no doubt about it you look at the roster they could do that without Dak 
Yeah, they could win the division because again, it's the NFC East and who knows, are they going to go anywhere in the playoffs if it's not Dak at the helm? Uh, not deep. I don't think that would be, that would be quite the story. Um, so again, the offense, if you look at it on paper and it's all healthy, it's as good as any offense in the NFC receiver loaded running back as, as strong too deep as any running back duo in the league. But if, if they have some, you know, injuries like they did last year, they drop off really quickly, right? Zeke was injured. Dak was injured. Um, defense had a range of injuries. Amari, Amari got hurt again. Yeah, It just, that's just, that'll, that'll just cut the guts out of any of their chances. And so again, we'll see if they stay healthy. Absolutely a force. Uh, Why don't we talk about the best NFC East players for fantasy this year, specifically underdog fantasy. And remember, if you use that promo code, Brett down in the description below, you'll get $25 free to play on the underdog platform. You can use that for any contest you want, but in particular, the best ball media contest, which is a three and a half million dollar prize pool and a million dollars to first place costs $25 for entry. So you basically get a free entry into that Um, underdog. It's, it's a fantastic platform that I draft on basically daily now because I'm getting my fantasy rankings all, all set to go. And I, I use underdog to kind of help me gauge value, you know, where certain players are getting drafted and everything right now. It's an invaluable resource for me, but I also really, really like the best ball format because I feel like I'm not punished for injuries as much. I'm not punished for, you know, game script going awry. I, I get rewarded for, you know, good off season evaluation and good drafting. And so it's, it's a very, it's a much more enjoyable format for me than normal formats. Um, my first of three NFC East players that I'm targeting heavily on underdog is Darius Slayton, which I know we we talked earlier about how we're not really sure what's going to happen with the Giants this year. But when I look at, um, you know, Kenny Galladay already has a soft tissue injury. Uh, Darius Slayton, he, he also got a little bit banged up, but he's practicing and he's fine, supposedly right now. And he already has a, a pretty good connection with Daniel Jones. I still feel like he's going to get a lot of targets in this offense because he'll be available and he has a connection with the quarterback. And I feel like in best ball specifically where one play can make the difference between, you know, getting five points and 15 points, Darius Slayton as a true deep threat, he he only has to make like one play a game for me and then I'll get the points. And I feel like for as streaky as he is, Best ball favors that kind of streaky player, and he's super explosive. Again, we don't even know if Kenny Galladay is going to be ready by week one. We'll find out soon. Like, I I don't know. I I like Darius Slayton, and the fact that you're getting him dirt cheap on underdog, he's going really, really late. I think it's good value. Yeah, we like Slayton a lot. We talked about him a lot last year, and he's got, you know, this isn't a this isn't leveraging your your pick on a rookie, right? Demonstrated ability to get open, demonstrated ability to get open deep and consistently, like you said, connection. Daniel Jones understands where he's going to be. If he stays clean with the ball, he does get it to him. They've had a productive relationship. So I don't, I don't mind the Slayton pick at all. And like you said, he's not going to be on the top of anybody's board, um, especially with the recent injury. It might even drop him down a little bit farther. So value-wise, like two thumbs up for that. My first is the guy we talked about, Terry McLaurin. 
bombs away with fits. Can't wait. Um, not going to be a tremendous value because that's not an unknown. There, there's no secret there. McLaurin's been ascending um, since he got drafted. Now has a quarterback who can get him the ball deep. Uh, you know, it's not not so strong on the value proposition. Real strong on the points proposition and the consistency. He's gonna get targets. He's the number one in Washington. Um, Fitz, as long as they have a decent connection, you're gonna get points on McLaurin every week. Um, so it would work for traditional fantasy format, but in best ball, he's gonna be the kind of guy that anchors you. Is is gonna be one of your points getters uh, that really sort of bases your score every week. Uh, week in and week out. So really excited about McLaurin's prospects this year. And when you look at, um, so Matt Harmon, he runs a reception perception, which is a great resource, by the way. Terry McLaurin's success versus man coverage rate is like 95%, which is insanity. There's like four guys ever that have hit that. He, he is an unbelievable talent. And with each passing year in the NFL, as he continues to get even better and better and better, we're going to look back at Ohio state and say, where the hell was that? (laughs) This dude's like an all pro caliber receiver. And he's getting like 300 yards in a season at Ohio state that throws the ball a lot. We're like, what, where, where'd this show up? Like if he didn't go to the senior bowl and roast every single DB there, we would have never known how good he is. Yeah, this is that's a huge credit to just all-star games in general. The senior bowl, particularly Jim Nagy and his staff, like McLaurin ascended at the senior bowl. For people that knew what they were looking for, his performance at the senior bowl was like, huh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. Like, we better put a premium. We're not gonna get that guy because everybody else saw that too. Right. We had tape, we had limited production, teams value production in different ways in college. Some more highly, some less highly system dependent. You go where all the top corners who are going to get drafted that year go, and you rip them all in front of everybody and their brother, all the agents, all the scouts, all the staff, all the GMs, right? It's not a secret anymore. Lids off. Like that guy can play against top talent. He's going. And he has not slowed down to his credit. Like he started his rise there. He took advantage of that. And he has been on a just a very consistent, we talk about it not being linear, progress not being linear, a very linear progression upward. He's He is a star. He's going to be a star. He's going to continue to produce. I don't really care who the quarterback is. It's one of those receivers that's good enough that he's kind of quarterback agnostic. He's going to get production no matter who's throwing him the ball. So yeah, McLaurin's awesome. Uh, my number two is a backup running back that, is going to get more touches than I think people realize. And that's Tony Pollard. Um, if, if Zeke goes down and again, this is not me wishing for injury or anything like that, but if Zeke goes down, which has happened a couple times in his career, Tony Pollard can step right in and be a monster. He's a tremendously talented running back, uh, to steal EJ's vernacular. Uh, he is, I mean, just in terms of inside-outside ability, he has the speed to work the edges. He's tough inside and can work through contact. He's he's great in terms of being able to, you know, get that extra yard or two through contact. He catches the ball well, pass protects. He's like a little, he's a, a Zeke 2.0 for them. Like, it's there's not really 
a gap to me in terms of the talent between running back one and running back two on that roster. Tony Pollard is a great, great football player. And the thing with underdog is if Zeke gets hurt, you know, let's say like early on in a game, you're not going to have to sit there and say like, ah, crap. I, I wish I had Tony Pollard or anything like, like he j- you just get the points for the rest of the game. Whatever Tony Pollard puts up, you get the points. Or even if let's just get off negativity and let's just say Zeke is healthy all year long. I still think that they're going to have more of like a 50, 50 carry split than like a 70, 30 carry split. And all you need is Tony Pollard to break one run, which he's very capable of doing because he's super fast. And all of a sudden he's out producing Zeke and you don't have to try to, if you own both of them, like let's say you're taking Pollard as a handcuff, which is a common play. He's one of the most valuable handcuffs in the league. If you take both of them, now you don't have to worry about like, ah, should I start Zeke or should I start? Like you can throw both of them in there on your lineup or not lineup roster. I should say you could draft both of them and just whoever the hot hand is, you're going to get points. It doesn't matter. You don't have to try to play this guessing game of who's getting the ball or, you know, who's going to have more success on a week to week basis. It doesn't matter. You're going to get the production regardless. So I'm, I'm a big fan of Tony Pollard. He's like a classic case of screw the situation, gamble on the talent because in the end talent is most likely going to win out for you. Yeah. Love Pollard. Amazing player. Uh, best compliment I can give him is he could start on a quarter of the teams in the league. Probably. Yeah. And there's a, there's a ton of talented running backs in the NFL. Don't care. Tony Pollard is that good. Uh, my worry with Pollard, that's the plus like tremendous talent. When he gets the ball, he's going to produce. He actually produced much better than Zeke did even when he was healthy last year in terms of, uh, his overall metrics. My worry with Pollard is that they're not going to do something smart. Zeke, uh, look, running back is a high mileage position. Zeke's got a lot of miles on him. He's injured last year. If they were smart, they would put him on a pitch count, right? They would balance it because there's no drop off if they go to Pollard. In fact, Pollard was even a little more efficient. So if they were smart, they would do that. I worry that they're not terribly smart because they paid Zeke like a billion dollars to run the ball and they're going to be like, (laughs) hey, we want Zeke to get his carries if he's healthy. Now, seen the best shape of his life. We've heard that he looks in much better shape than he came into camp last year. Unfortunately, that leans more towards lean on him until the wheels fall off, right? I think if they wanted to keep him a little bit fresher, they should lean on Pollard because he's so talented. I'd love to see it. I'm just worried that they won't. So take that for what you will. We're going to stay on the running back theme. I'm going to go Antonio Gibson. And this is one of those Memphis Memphis guys, right? We talked about (laughs) Memphis who had very few snaps at running back in college, like 38 or something like that. It was 35 or 38. It was crazy. And came in and they said, no, he's going to play running back. And everybody was like, huh, does that, you know, limit his value because of versatility? Uh, Turns out Antonio Gibson's just really explosive no matter where you put him. Um, 170 carries, which is not a lot for running back last year. 795 yards out of those 140 carries. 4.7 a clip. That's a whole lot better than the guys in Dallas we just talked about. Yep. Zeke was right about four a clip, a little bit under. So you're talking about almost a full yard more per carry. And that's as a rookie. He's going to get better. Chipped in 11 touchdowns last year. So I think he's going to get better. He's got a year in the system. He understands. He's going to get more passing targets as well. And again, he was used more as a receiver in college. This is not a role he's unfamiliar with. 
And Fitz is no stranger to dump offs. He will do it uh, if the player is open. And if he knows, and he's going to learn it very quickly if he doesn't, that if he gets the ball to Gibson in space, the results are going to be pretty good. That's going to be a positive play more times than it's not. Um, so uh, while he had some receptions last year, 34, I think, uh, I think he's going to get even more this year, and he's probably going to get more yardage attached to those as well, as well as inflating that straight-up rushing number. So even if he comes in at like 850 or 950 yards rushing, which I do not think are unachievable targets for him at all, um, he's probably going to add more than the couple hundred yards he had receiving as well. So you're talking about a guy that's looking at maybe 1,300 yards from scrimmage, maybe 1,400, might add a couple of passing touchdowns in as well this year that's a player that's right up there in terms of production um because again running backs that don't catch very many passes not necessarily great plays in fantasy gibson didn't catch a ton last year but i think he's going to catch more this year and increase the rushing total so that's a that's a guy you want in your lineup and remember i mean he was injured last year for part of the like he didn't even play every single game mm-hmm. like i i don't even think it's like a 950 target i think we're shooting for like 1200 rushing like, I, if not more, if he's healthy the whole year, I could absolutely see it because of the explosion, because of the experience. It wouldn't surprise me in the least unless some of that gets carved off and those runs become swing passes. Right. And they count as passing yards. I, I think really the main threat to him is like, OK, how many snaps is McKissick going to get? How many snaps is Patterson going to get? Because like their backfield's strong and they might recognize that, you know, Gibson is the talent that he is. And it's kind of like that old, uh, it's almost like a paradox of like, man, we have this running back that's really, really good. Should we give him as many carries as humanly possible? Or should we <laughs> pare down his product so that we can just yeah. save him and preserve? Like, it's a, you never really know how a coaching staff is going to philosophically address a running back by committee approach. Uh, so it, we'll find out. But in terms of just pure talent, Antonio Gibson is a phenomenal football player. Really, really good. Um, and then I'll kind of roll in my number three and your number three together. Because, <laughs> you know, their situations are related. They are. My number three is C.D. Lamb. Your number three is Michael Gallup. And I think both of us are looking at the Amari Cooper injury situation and going like, well, that's going to help one of them. But if anything, it might actually help both of them. Because let's just say Amari's missing games to start the season or he's not 100%. He's on a pitch count. Like, again, he just had another surgery. He's never really been a picture of health anyway throughout his entire career. I still feel like individual skill set wise, there's room for both CD and Gallup to really, really feast here. CD in particular in the red zone, Gallup in particular as a deep threat because he's, I think, their best true deep threat on the team. And really the only question is, what are you willing to spend? Because CD is going to go way ahead of Gallup, but he also has, I think, higher upside because he's going to score a lot more. Whereas Gallup's the guy where it's like, okay, I'm waiting until way later in the draft, but I know I'm still getting a great player. And I think it just kind of comes down to your approach of, do I want to prioritize that alpha or do I want to prioritize kind of like the back burner value that is Michael Gallup? Yeah, Gallup is going to come later. And the value, it, it is more of a value proposition. You talked about a value with Darius Slayton. Um, Gallup's not going to be that much of a raging value because he's more well-known. Um, 
but the difference between Gallup and CD last year was a lot closer than people think, right? Gallup put up 843 yards and five touchdowns. CD put up 935 yards and five touchdowns. But he took 15 more targets or 15 more catches to do it. Um, so Gallup is the, you know, 14.3 yards per attempt, right? That's, that is a big chunk. He's going to catch the the bits in terms of more touchdowns. I think CD will probably have more touchdowns this year, but last year they were literally dead even. Um, so Gallup better value. You're going to get him a little bit later and get similar production CD more upside. Again, he was a rookie last year. I think he's going to be even better in year two, probably score more touchdowns. It's just, you're going to have to prioritize capital to get him. But again, if you don't have that alpha, like CD is going to be a pretty good, like one, a, right? Because if Mari does come back, CD will probably be the number two in that pecking order. Either way, both great players in that offense. Um, the only rookie value we have in this entire division, because not a lot of offensive players got drafted, um, is Devonta Smith. Uh, just the only line I've got for him is don't bet against him. Like everybody's yeah. bet against him his whole life and they've all lost. Don't bet against him. He will find a way to be productive and get yards. Don't care who the quarterback is. Hope the offensive line's stable. I hope that for any passing offense, any offense in general. But Devonta Smith is the only sort of rookie value we've got in in pretty much the whole division. Um, which brings us to best and worst. And so uh, it's kind of a there's a there's a big if statement attached here. Uh-huh. Because I do believe that Washington will win the division if Dak is not healthy. If Dak is healthy, I think Dallas will win the division. And so it, a lot is riding on that shoulder that we still don't really know a whole lot about. Again, the vibes coming out of camp have been positive, but also at the same time, you're like, okay, but he's not practicing. So <laughs> I don't really know how to interpret all that. The only thing that I'm, well, I can't say I'm sure of it because I, again, it's a very hard team to project. The only thing that I'm a little bit more confident in is the New York Giants finishing fourth in division. Not that I think that they're going to finish with a terrible record. Um, I just think a lot of these teams are going to cannibalize each other. And, you know, it might be like a a 6-11, 7-10 situation, maybe like an 8-9 situation. Uh, Like, it's not going to be like a 3-14 situation. Like, it's not going to be, you know, a Houston Texans type thing. But I do, I do think that there is a gap between, it's not a big gap, but there is a gap between what the Giants have uh, versus what Dallas and Washington have. Again, all health being equal. So I, I do have the Giants finishing fourth. I don't think they're going to be a bad team, but I just, I don't think that they're quite on the level of those others. Yeah, I'm going to go out on a limb and say Washington pulls it together this year and wins the division. Um, not necessarily going to make it dependent on Dak health. Although we talked about that as the primary wild card in the division, right? If Dak is healthy, that offense looks really good. Hopefully Quinn elevates the defense to be able to, to keep people from putting up 40 burgers on them every week. Um, but either way, I think the Washington football team is incredibly talented. Again, we talked about Rivera's steady leadership. I think Fitzpatrick is enough for them at quarterback to maximize their offensive weapons, which they've continued to collect the defense. We talked about being very good in the front, very good in the back. 
Um, and I'm going to say Philadelphia comes in fourth, uh, not because I think they're short on talent necessarily, but they're a year behind the Giants and that they have a brand new staff that we talked about being not terribly tenured. Um, they're still figuring it out in terms of offense and defense, right? They didn't show a great late season surge. Um, and then they reshuffled their staff. So they're starting over. If they gel very quickly, and we have seen young staffs do this when uh, LeFleur came into Green Bay, I realize there's a very different X factor there that helped them achieve success quickly. But if a staff comes together quickly, teams can win early in a new staff's tenure. I just don't get that vibe out of Philadelphia that that it's going to gel that quickly. I think they're going to take a little while to find their stride. I'm not going to say whether they're going to be fine or not. I don't know. We don't know. We said that. It's going to take a while i think and in that while i don't know that they're going to be a force are they going to steal some games sure um are they going to win the games they're supposed to mm, we'll find out are they going to steal games they shouldn't probably not early in the season i don't think they're there yet again as long as the wheels don't come off the giants they did have a late season sort of gelling moment under joe judge and they started to play some really good football so i'd say they're a little bit ahead um maybe just ahead of Philadelphia. Again, I don't think the Giants are going to run away with anything and, and Philadelphia is going to be a two-win team. It's not what I'm saying. I just think Philadelphia probably comes in fourth. Again, it's a wild division, but I like Washington's chances based on talent, coaching, where they're at. Um, I'm going to say they win the division. It's fascinating how all of these teams are so conditional in terms of, sure. you know, it's like Dallas is conditional on Dak's health. Washington is conditional on, I think, some of the non-football things that are going on right now that could potentially put them at a very large competitive disadvantage if the wrong person gets sick at the wrong time. Um, you know, Giants are conditional on, does Daniel Jones take another step, even if the receiving core is really banged up? Eagles are conditional on, how does this young coaching staff gel, and is their young quarterback progressing? It is like the NFC East is always impossible to predict, but especially this year, it is impossible to predict. And it's just all question marks. It's all question end. marks. Okay. I, I have no idea. Like, again, we're predicting like, oh, we think it's Dallas or we think it's, I don't fucking know. Like, if you told me tomorrow that the Eagles were, went like 13 and four, I'd be, like, I'd be like, well, that's implausible, but sure. Why not? Yeah, no, it is. This division, I think the best uh, description of the NFC East is mix and stir. Yeah. <laughs> right? Put it in a bowl, mix and stir. Something's going to come out at the end. Is it going to be what we expect? Uh, I kind of doubt that, actually, more so than, you know, the being surprised in this division is less surprising than in a lot of other divisions, right? If you told me Detroit was going to run the NFC North, I would be really surprised, right? I would just be like, okay. I mean, again, could happen. If you told me that, you know, Philadelphia puts together a 10-win season and that's good enough to win the division, I'd be like, uh, okay. I'd be less surprised. <laughs> you would just be like, yeah, that's that's completely on par for that's, what this division you know what that gives is? you. That's completely NFC East. It's on brand. It's very yes, on brand. It's on brand for the NFC East. Oh, all right, EJ. We just, we're about to crack the three-hour mark which means we're officially at Lord of the Rings length, which means we can finally, finally go to bed. 
I know it's I guess it's three thirty in the afternoon, but I'm ready You've for a nap. Oh my I, god! Yeah. I need some food because uh, we started right around lunchtime and I didn't eat, so it's time to get some food on. But um, quick thank you to all the bootleg fans. Uh, did a podcast this last week where we ended up talking a lot about the formation of bootleg and the start of all that. Got a chance to thank you there, but it's a pretty small run podcast. Want to thank you again here. The support throughout the off season has been tremendous. Usually there's a luff, right? There's a six-week gap, drought, whatever you want to call it. There's no football news. That's over. <laughs> we've already had a football game. We had the Hall of Fame game. Uh, we've got camp news every day. It's just, I don't know about you, but it's tremendous to be back. That period from sort of the end of draft and the, you know, the first little bit of rookie minicamp, that huge gap. You folks have absolutely carried us. Our numbers have been tremendous and rising. They have us extremely hopeful for the season. Again, we get all kinds of engagement for you, whether it's Brett's fantasy drafts or comments on YouTube or engagement on Twitter, um, podcast views on YouTube. Like, it doesn't matter. You've all been amazing and just wanted to say thanks for that. So um, hang on. It's going to be a wild season. Uh, we've got a little bit of run up before that really gets into it, but football is back and we will be here for you. Only got one division left, EJ. AFC East, uh, Patriots, Dolphins, Bills, and Jets fans have been waiting very patiently for two months now, more than two months. It's yeah. It's been a long time coming. So we got one more to go, and then uh, we are diving right into the NFL season. Thank you, everybody, for watching and listening, wherever you happen to be watching and or listening. Appreciate all of you a lot, and we'll see you back very soon with the AFC East.